Thanks for stopping by, ladies and gentlemen. It's Chase and Josh with Factor Fantasy here to give you part five of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, where today we'll be cha tackling chapter 22 through chapter 24. And boy, do we have some big moments for you today before we get into all of that great stuff. Uh, Chase is going to have a really big moment here today. He's got some new things on his end. Yeah, actually a little bit more different than you've seen so far. There's a few new wrinkles on his visuals if you're watching on YouTube. If you're not, I'm going to go ahead and turn the floor over to Chase so we can describe it to you if you're just listening uh, through audio on podcasts, wherever you do get your podcasts from. So with that being said, Chase, go ahead and tell them what you got on your set, and then we'll kind of jump into stuff. Sounds good, Jay Nelly. Yeah, I gave a, a little preview at the beginning of the last week's episode that we would have some new visuals here. Um, so I've talked about it before on our earlier episodes when I first brought the British versions of Harry Potter out. Uh, so I told you, you know, I opened up that box when I first got those Harry Potter books that were British from my mom at Christmas. And at the top of the box was this uh, picture in a frame. And I was like, what is this doing in there? That's not that exciting. Well, it came full circle because uh, it plays a big role where I needed it today. It's a framed picture of Dobby the house elf. And uh, just on the right side here, uh, in between Harry and Hermione. So Hermione's on Tales of Beetle and the Bard, the American version that we had last week on the visuals. And in the middle is Dobby the house elf. And then we have Harry next to him. And then on the bottom is Ron, because we got a big moment today, if you can see where that's going. So, and with that, I'm going to let you kick us off today. Let's just jump right into it. And uh, yeah, man, uh, I'll let you kick us off from here, brother. So the lighting is kind of bright on that Dobby picture. Do you mind grabbing it and holding it up so people can kind of take a look and see what you got? Because that's a really cool photo. Perfect. That's awesome. Great stuff, man. I love it. You, got, you always got to give your mom regards uh, from me every time you talk to her, because... Uh, we're all family here at uh, at our show. So uh, like Chase said, with that being <laughs> said, uh, we'll go ahead and kind of get into what we're going to talk about today. It's a little bit different, right? Today we're only tackling three chapters, chapter 22, chapter 23, and chapter 24. Reason being is because this is where it, start, like, it kind of stops for part one and where next week we will be jumping into differences between the film and the novel for De Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part 1 right here that you guys can see on my visual set, the uh, the DVD on the left-hand side. So we're going to go ahead and, and just tackle the, these three chapters here because there's so much important detail and action-packed moments that we couldn't add it on to last week's episode because it would have made the entire episode too long and we didn't want to just kind of like skip over it. So we're giving these three chapters its own episode. And so that way, when we dive into the differences next week, it'll kind of be fresh right where they leave off in the book to where uh, Deathly Hallows Part 1, the movie, leaves off as well. It's kind of a really, uh, it's a good <laughs> symbiotic uh, relationship. Very good <laughs> symbolism there. So with that being said, we're going to go ahead and jump into Chapter 22 before I do that, though, I always kind of give a quick recap of where we left off. So last week, we talked about chapters 18 through 21. Chapter 18, we got to know a little bit about uh, Albus Dumbledore's past, learned that he was actually friends with Gellert Grindelwald, that it was his ideas that kind of helped launch Grindelwald's launching pad into the dark arts and really what he stood for as a as the you know greatest dark wizard before Voldemort, right? 
And then going into chapter 19 was the Silver Doe, where uh, Chase kind of told you guys about the amazing things that happened, not only with finding the Sword of Gryffindor and Ron showing back up, but what happened once the locket opened, those things that came out, and how uh, Ron handled it from there. And then after the Horcrux was destroyed, Hermione said she wants to go to Xenophilus's Love Goods place because the symbol kept popping up. They decide to go to Xenophilius Lovegood's place. That's where we find out what the Deathly Hallows are. And then uh, he kind of played a Trixie rabbit and <laughs> made, made kind of cut them possum and staying at that location just a bit longer than necessary because he was trying to have the Death Eaters come up and ambush them so he can get Luna back because we find out that Luna has been taken captive by the Death Eaters for what Xenophilius Lovegood was writing in the Quibbler in support of Harry Potter. So... That kind of gives us a little launching pad of where we're going to go into today. That's where we left off last week. So we'll go ahead and open our books up to page 424. That's chapter 22, named The Deathly Hallows. I've only got two bullet points before I kind of take it through the entirety of the chapter. So right here on page 424, I have that uh, Hermione made a genius move. We kind of touched on it last week just a tear at the very, very end of the favorite moments section. But uh, she let the Death Eaters see her and Harry so that, that that way they would see Xenophilius Lovegood was not lying about Harry being there. But the second part of that was she also made sure Ron was underneath the invisibility cloak because the Weasleys are basically neighbors and Ron's supposed to be sick with Spattergroyd. So if they found out they, if they saw Ron... Now all of a sudden the Weasleys are even more trouble than what they are at this point in time. So she made an awesome move. Hey, let them catch a quick glance of Harry so that way they know Xenophilus isn't lying. Keep Neville, or not Neville, um, Xenophilus and Luna love good safe. And then on top of that, take uh, Ron out of the equation, put him underneath the invisibility cloak so that way it keeps the Weasley family uh, at least safe for the moment, right? So with that, I'm going to go into page 425, the right next page. Uh, They contemplate Luna's fate. And where she might be, Ron thinks it's Azkaban. But this is kind of a foreshadow. He's not exactly right about that. But we will figure out where exactly Luna is in these three chapters that we are going to tackle today. So from page 426, I will take this from the very top through the end of chapter 22. I'll go ahead and start here. Oh, why did we go there, groaned groaned Hermione after a few minutes silence. Harry, you were right. It was Godric's Hollow all over again. A complete waste of time, the Deathly Hallows. Such rubbish. Although actually, a sudden thought seemed to have struck her. He might have made it all up, mightn't he? He probably doesn't believe in the Deathly Hallows at all. Just wanted to keep us talking until the Death Eaters arrived. I don't think so, said Ron. It's a damn sight harder making stuff up when you're under stress than you'd think. I found that out myself when the Snatchers caught me. It was much easier pretending to be Stan because I knew a bit about him than inventing a whole new person. Old Lovegood was under loads of pressure trying to make sure he stayed put. I reckon he told us the truth, or what he thinks is the truth, just to keep us talking. I don't suppose it matters, said Hermione. Even if he was being honest, I've never heard of such nonsense in all my life. Hang on, though, said Ron. The Chamber of Secrets was supposed to be a myth, too, wasn't it? But the Deathly Hallows can't exist, Ron. You keep saying that, but one of them can, said Ron. Harry's invisibility cloak. The Tale of the Three Brothers is a story, said Hermione firmly, a story about how humans are frightened of death, if surviving was as simple as hiding under the invisibility cloak, we'd have everything we need already. I don't know. We could do with an unbeatable wand, said Harry, turning the Blackthorn wand he disliked over in his finger. There's no such thing, Harry. 
You said there have been loads of wands, the death stick, whatever they were called. Alright, you, you want to kid yourself that the Elder Wand is real. What about the Resurrection Stone? Her fingers sketched quotation marks around the name as her tone dripped sarcasm. No magic can raise the dead. And that's that. Well, when my wand connected with you-know-who, it made my mom and dad appear, and Cedric. But they weren't really back from the dead, were they? Said Hermione. Those kind of pale imitations aren't the same as truly bringing someone back to life. But she, the girl in the tale, didn't really come back, did she? The story says that once people are dead, they belong with the dead, but the second brother still got to see her and talk to her, didn't he? He even lived with her for a while. He saw concern and something less definable in Hermione's expression. Then as she glanced at Ron, Harry realized that it was fear. He had scared her with his talk of living with the dead people. So that Peveril bloke who's buried in Godric's Hollow, he said hastily, trying to sound robustly sane. You don't know anything about him, then? No, she replied, looking relieved at the change of subject. I looked him up after I saw the mark on his grave. If he'd been anyone famous or done anything important, I'm sure he'd have been one of our books. But the only place I managed to find the name Peveril is Nature's Nobility, a wizarding genealogy. I borrowed it from Creature, she explained as Ron raised his eyebrows. It lists pureblood families that are now extinct in the male line. Apparently, the Peverils are one of the earliest families to vanish. Extinct in the male line, repeated Ron. It means the names died out, said Hermione. Centuries ago, in, in the case of the Peverils. They could still have descendants, though. They'd just be called something different. And then it came to Harry in one shining piece. The memory that stirred at the sound of the name, Peveril. A filthy old man brandishing an ugly ring in the face of a ministry official, and he cried aloud, Marvelo Gaunt! Sorry, said Ron and Hermione together. Marvelo Gaunt, you know whose grandfather in the Pensieve with Dumbledore. Marvelo Gaunt said he was descended from the Peverils. Ron and Hermione looked bewildered. The ring, the ring that became the Horcrux. Marvelo Gaunt said it had the Peveril coat of arms on it. I saw him waving it in the bloke from the Ministry's face. He nearly shoved it up his nose. The Peveril coat of arms, said Hermione sharply. Could you see what it looked like? Not really, said Harry, trying to remember. There was nothing fancy on there. As far as I could see, maybe a few scratches. I only ever saw it up close after it had been cracked open. Harry saw Hermione's comprehension in the sudden widening of her eyes. Ron was looking from one to the other astonished. Blimey, you reckon it was this sign again? The sign of the Hallows? Why not, said Harry excitedly. Marvel Gaunt was an ignorant old git who lived like a pig. All he cared about was his ancestry. If that ring had been passed down through the centuries, he might not have known what it really was. There were no books in that house, and trust me, he wasn't the type to read fairy tales to his kids. He'd have loved to think that the scratches on the stone were a coat of arms, because as far as he was concerned, having pure blood made you practically royal. Yes, that's all very interesting, said Hermione cautiously, but Harry, if you're thinking what I think you're th Well, why not? Why not? said her, uh, Harry, abandoning caution. It was a stone, wasn't it? He looked around at Ron for support. What if it was a resurrection stone? Ron's mouth fell open. Blimey, but would it still work if Dumbledore broke- Work! Work! Ron, it never worked! There's no such thing as a resurrection stone! Hermione had leapt to her feet, looking exasperated and angry. Harry, you're trying to fit everything into the Hallow story. Fit everything in, he repeated. Hermione, it fits of its own accord. I know the sign of that Deathly Hallows is on that stone. Gaunt said he was descended from the Peverils. A minute ago, you told us you never saw the mark on the stone properly. Where do you reckon the ring is now? Ron asked Harry. What did Dumbledore do with it after he broke it open? But Harry's imagination was racing ahead, far beyond Ron and Hermione. Three objects, or Hallows, which, if united, will make the possessor... Master of death, master, conqueror, vanquisher, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And he saw himself, possessor of the hallows, facing Voldemort, whose horcruxes were no match. Neither can live while the other survives. Was this the answer? Hallows versus horcruxes? Was there a way, after all, to ensure that he was the one who triumphed? 
If he were to master the Deathly Hallows, would he be safe? Harry, but he scarcely heard Hermione. He had pulled out his invisibility cloak and was running through it with his fingers. The cloth supple as water, light as air. He had never seen anything to, anything equal to it in his nearly seven years in the Wizarding World. The cloak was exactly as Xenophilius had described. A cloak that really and truly rendered the wearer completely invisible and endures internally giving constant and impenetrable concealment no matter what spells are cast at it. And then he gasped and he remembered. Dumbledore had my cloak the night my parents died. His voice shook and he could feel the color in his face, but he did not care. My mom told Sirius that Dumbledore borrowed the cloak. This is why. He wanted to examine it because he thought it was a third hallow. Ignotus Peveril buried in Godric's hollow. Harry was walking blindly around the tent, feeling as though great vistas of truth were opening all around him. He's my ancestor. I'm descended from the third brother. It all makes sense. He felt armed in certainty in his belief in the Hallows, as if the mere idea of possessing him, possessing them was giving him protection, and he felt joyous as he turned back to the other two. Harry, said Hermione again, but he was busy undoing the pouch around his neck, his fingers shaking hard. Read it, he told her, pushing his mother's letter into her hand. Read it. Dumbledore had the cloak, Hermione. Why else would he want it? He didn't need a cloak. He could perform a disillusionment charm so powerful that he made himself completely invisible without one. Something fell to the floor and rolled, glittering, under a chair. He had dislodged the snitch when he pulled out the letter. He stooped to pick it up, and then the newly tapped spring of fabulous discoveries threw him yet another gift, and shock and wonder erupted inside him so that he shouted out, It's in here! He left me the ring! It's in the snitch! Y you reckon? He cannot understand why Ron looked taken aback. It was so obvious, so clear to Harry. Everything fit. Everything. His cloak was the third hallow, and when he discovered how to open the snitch, he would have the second, and then all he needed to do was find the first hallow, the Elder Wand, and then... But it was as though a curtain fell on a lit stage. All his excitement, all his hope and happiness were extinguished at a stroke, and he stood alone in the darkness, and the glorious spell was broken. That's what he's after. The change of his voice made Ron and Hermione look even more scared. You know who's after the Elder Wand. He turned his, he turned his back on their strained and credulous faces. He knew he was telling the truth. It all made sense. Voldemort was not seeking a new wand. He was seeking an old wand. A very old wand indeed. Harry walked to the entrance of the tent, forgetting about Ron and Hermione as he looked out into the night, thinking. Voldemort had been raised in a muggle orphanage. Nobody could have told him the tales of Beetle the Bard when he was a child any more than Harry had heard them. Hardly any wizards believed in the Deathly Hallows. Was it likely that Voldemort knew about them? Harry gazed into the darkness. If Voldemort had known about the Deathly Hallows, surely he would have sought them, done anything to possess them. Three objects that made him, the three objects that made the possessor master of death? If he had known about the Deathly Hallows, he might not have needed to make Horcruxes in the first place. Didn't the simple fact that he had taken a hallow and turned it into a Horcrux demonstrate that he did not know this last great wizarding secret? which meant that Voldemort sought the Elder Wand without realizing its full power, without understanding that it was one of three. For the wand was the hallow that could not be hidden, whose existence was best known. The bloody trail of the Elder Wand is splattered across the pages of wizarding history. Harry watched the cloudy sky, curves of smoke gray and silver sliding over the face of the white moon. He felt lightheaded with amazement at his discoveries. He turned back into the tent, and it was, a sh it was a shock to see Ron and Hermione standing exactly where he had left them, Hermione still holding Lily's letter, Ron at her side, looking slightly anxious. Didn't they realize how far they had traveled in these last few minutes? This is it, Harry said, trying to bring them inside the glow of his own astonished certainty. This explains everything. The Deathly Hallows are real. I've got one, maybe two, he held up the snitch, and you know who's chasing the third, but he doesn't realize. He just thinks it's a powerful wand. Harry, 
said Hermione moving across to him and handing him back Lily's letter. I'm sorry, but I think you've got this all wrong. All wrong. But don't you see? It all fits. No, it doesn't, she said. It doesn't. Harry, you're just getting carried away. Please. She said as she started to speak. Please just answer me this. If the Deathly Hallows really existed and Dumbledore knew about them, knew that the person who possessed all three of them would be the master of death, Harry, why wouldn't he have told you? Why? He had his answer ready. But you said it, Hermione. You've got to find out about them for yourself. It's a quest. I only said that to try and persuade you to come to the love goods, she cried in exasperation. I really didn't believe it. Harry took no notice. Dumbledore usually let me find out stuff for myself. He let me try my strengths, take risks. This feels like the kind of thing he'd do. Harry, this isn't a game. This isn't practice. This is the real thing. And Dumbledore left you very clear instructions. Find and destroy the Horcruxes. That symbol doesn't mean anything. Forget the Deathly Hallows. We can't afford to get sidetracked. Harry was barely listening to her. He was turning the snitch over and over in his hands, half expecting it to break open to reveal the resurrection stone to prove to Hermione that he was right, that the Deathly Hallows were real. She appealed to Ron. You don't believe in this, do you? Harry looked up and Ron hesitated. I, I don't know. I mean, bits of it sort of fit together, said Ron awkwardly. But when you look at the whole thing, he took a deep breath. I think we're supposed to get rid of Horcruxes, Harry. That's what Dumbledore told us to do. Maybe we should forget about this Hallows business. Thank you, Ron, said Hermione. I'll take the first watch. And she strode past Harry and sat down in the tent entrance, bringing the action to a fierce full stop. But Harry hardly slept at all that night. The idea of Deathly Hallows had taken possession of him, and he could not rest while agitating thoughts whirled around his mind. The wand, the stone, the cloak, if he could just possess them all. I opened at the clothes, but what was the clothes? Why couldn't he have the stone now? If only he had the stone, he could ask Dumbledore these questions in person. And Harry murmured words to the snitch in the darkness, trying everything, even parcel tongue, but the golden ball would not open. And the wand, the elder wand, where was that hidden? Where was Voldemort searching now? Harry wished his scar would burn and show him Voldemort's thoughts because for the first time ever, he and Voldemort were united in wanting the very same thing. Hermione would not like the idea, of course, but then she did not believe. Xenophilius had been right, in a way. Limited. Narrow. Close-minded. The truth was that she was scared of the idea of the Deathly Hallows, especially the Resurrection Stone. And Harry pressed his mouth again to the snitch, kissing it, nearly swallowing it, but the cold metal did not yield. It was nearly dawn when he remembered Luna alone in a cell in Azkaban, surrounded by Dementors, and he suddenly felt ashamed of himself. He had forgotten all about her in his feverish contemplation of the Hallows. If they could only rescue her, but Dementors in those numbers would be virtually unassailable. Now he came to think about it, he had not tried casting a Patronus with the Blackthorn Wand, and he must try that in the morning. If only there was a way of getting a better wand. And desire for the Elder Wand, the Death Stick, unbeatable, invincible, swallowed him once more. They packed up the tent in the morning and moved on through a jeery shower of rain. The downpour pursued them to the coast where they pitched the tent that night and persisted through the whole week, though sodden landscapes that Harry found bleak and depressing. He could only think of the hallows. It was as though a flame had been lit inside him that nothing, not Hermione's flat disbelief, nor Ron's persistent doubt, could extinguish. And yet the fiercer the longing for the hallows burned inside him, the less joyful it made him. He blamed Ron and Hermione. Their determined indifference was as bad as the relentless rain for dampening his spirits, but neither could erode his certainty, which remained absolute. Harry's belief and longing for the hallows consumed him so much that he felt quite isolated from the other two and their obsession with the Horcruxes. Obsession? said Hermione in a low, fierce voice when Harry was careless enough to use that word one evening, after Hermione had told him off for his lack of interest in locating more Horcruxes. We're not the ones with an obsession, Harry. We're the ones trying to find 
we're trying we're the ones trying to do what Dumbledore wanted us to do. But he was impervious to the veiled criticism. Dumbledore had left the sign of the house for Hermione to decipher. He had also, Harry remained convinced of it, left the resurrection stone hidden in the golden snitch. Neither can live while the other survives. Master of death. Why didn't Ron and Hermione understand? The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, Harry quoted calmly. I thought it was supposed to be you know who we were fighting, Hermione retorted, and Harry gave up on her. Even the mystery of the silver doe, which the other two insisted on discussing, seemed less important to Harry now. A vaguely interesting sideshow. The only other thing that mattered to him was that his scar had begun to prickle again. Although he did all he could to hide this fact from the other two, he sought solitude whenever it happened. But he was disappointed by what he saw. The visions he and Voldemort were sharing had changed in quality. They had become blurred, shifting as though they were moving in and out of focus. Harry was just able to make out the indistinct features of an object that looked like a skull, and something like a mountain that was way more of a shadow than substance. Used to images sharp as reality, Harry was disconcerted by the change. He was worried that the connection between him and himself and Voldemort had been damaged. A connection he both feared, and whatever he had told Hermione, prized. Somehow, Harry connected these unsatisfying, vague images with the destruction of his wand, as if the Blackthorn's wand, it was the Blackthorn's wand's fault that he could no longer see into Voldemort's wand, mind as well as before. As the weeks crept on, Harry could not help but notice, even through his no, new self-absorption, that Ron seemed to be taking charge. Perhaps because he was determined to make up for having walked out on them, perhaps because Harry's descent into listlessness galvanized his dormant leadership qualities, Ron was the one now encouraging and exhorting the other two into action. Three Horcruxes left, he kept saying. We need a plan of action. Come on, where haven't we looked? Let's go through it again. The Orphanage, Diagon Alley, Hogwarts, the Riddle House, Borgen and Burks, Albania, every place that they knew Tom Riddle had ever lived or worked, visited, or murdered. Ron and Hermione raked over them again, Hermione, Harry joining in only to stop Hermione from pestering him. He had been happy to sit alone in silence, trying to read Voldemort's thoughts, to find out more about the Elder Wand, but Ron insisted on journeying to ever more unlikely places, simply, Harry was aware, to keep them moving. You never know, was Ron's constant refrain. Upper Flagley is a wizarding village. He might have wanted to live there. Let's go and have a poke around. These frequent forays into the wizarding territory brought them with an occasional sight of snatchers. Some of them are supposed to be as bad as Death Eaters, said Ron. A lot, the lot that got me were a bit pathetic, but Bill reckons some of them are really dangerous. They said on Potter Watch... Uh, on what? Asked Harry. Potter Watch. Didn't I tell you that's what it was called? The program I keep trying to get on the radio? The only one that tells you the truth about what's going on. Nearly all the programs are following you know whose line except Potter Watch. I really want you to hear it, but it's tricky tuning in. Ron spent evening after evening using his wand to beat out various rhythms on the top of the wireless while the dials whirled. Occasionally, they would catch snatches of advice on how to treat dragon pox, and once a few bars of a cauldron full of hot, strong love. <laughs> While he tapped, Ron continuously tried to hit on the correct password, muttering strings of random words under his breath. They're normally something to do with the order, he told them. Bill had a real knack for guessing them. I'm bound to get one in the end. But it was not until March that luck favored Ron at last. Harry was sitting in the tent entrance on guard duty, staring idly at a clump of great hyacinths when he had forced their way to the chilly ground and Ron shouted excitedly from inside the tent. I've got it! I've got it! The password was Albus! Get in here, Harry! Roused for the first time in days from his contemplation of the Deathly Hallows, Harry hurried back inside the tent to find Ron and Hermione kneeling on the floor beside the little radio. Hermione, who had been polishing the sword of Gryffindor just for something to do, was sitting open-mouthed staring at the tiny speaker from which a most familiar voice was issuing. 
apologize for our temporary absence from the airwaves, which was due to a member of a number of house calls in our area by those charming Death Eaters. But that's Lee Jordan, said Hermione. I know, Bimran, cool, eh? Now, found ourselves another secure location, Lee was saying, and I'm pleased to tell you that two of our regular contributors have joined me here this evening. Evening, boys! Hi. Evening, River. River, that's Lee, Ron explained. They've all got code names, but you can usually tell- Shh! said Hermione. But before we hear from Royal and Romulus, Lee went on, let's take a moment to report those deaths in the Wizarding Wireless Network news and Daily Prophet don't think are important enough to mention. It is with great regret that we inform our listeners of the murders of Ted Tonks and Dirk Cresswell. Harry felt a sick swooping in his belly. He, Ron, and Hermione gazed at one another in horror. A goblin by the name of Gornick was also killed. It is believed that Muggle-born Dean Thomas and a second goblin, both believed to have been traveling with Tonks, Cresswell, and Gornick, may have escaped. If Dean is listening, or if anyone has any knowledge of his whereabouts, his parents and sisters are desperate for news. Meanwhile, in Gadley, a Muggle family of five has been found dead in their home. Muggle authorities are attributing the death to a gas leak, but members of the Order of the Phoenix inform me that it was a killing curse. More evidence, as if it were needed, of the fact that Muggle slaughter is becoming little more than recreational sport under the new regime. Finally, we regret to inform our listeners that the remains of Bathilda Bagshot have been discovered in Godric's Hollow. The evidence is that she died several months ago. The Order of the Phoenix informs us that her body showed unmistakable signs of injuries inflicted by dark magic. Listeners, I'd like to invite you now to join us in a minute's silence in memory of Ted Tonks, Dirk Cresswell, Bathilda Bagshot, Gornuk, and the unnamed but no less regretted Muggles murdered by the Death Eaters. Silence fell and Harry, Ron, and Hermione did not speak. Half of Harry yearned to hear more and half of him was afraid of what might come next. It was the first time he had felt fully connected to the outside world for such a long time. Thank you, said Lee's voice, and now he turned to the regular contributor, Royal, for an update on how the new Wizarding Order is affecting the Muggle world. Thanks, River, said the unmistakable voice, deep, measured, reassuring. Kingsley, burst out Ron. We know, said Hermione, hushing him. Muggles remain ignorant of the source of their suffering as they continue to sustain heavy casualties, said Kingsley. However, we continue to hear... Truly inspirational stories of wizards and witches risking their own safety to protect muggle friends and neighbors, often without the muggles' knowledge. I'd like to appeal to all of our listeners to emulate their example, perhaps by casting a protective charm over any muggle dwellings in your street. Many lives could be saved if simple measures such as those were taken. And what would you say, Royal, to those listeners who replied that in these dangerous times it should be wizards first, asked Lee. I'd say that's one short step from wizards first to pure bloods first, and then the Death Eaters, replied Kingsley. We're all humans, aren't we? Every human life is worth the same and worth saving. Excellently put, Royal, and you've got my vote for Minister of Magic if we ever get out of this mess. And now over to Romulus for a popular feature, Pales of Potter. Thanks, River, said another familiar voice. Ron started to speak, but Hermione forestalled him in a whisper. We know it's Lupin. Romulus, how do you maintain, as you have every time you've appeared on a program, that Harry Potter is still alive. I do, said Lupin firmly, because there is no doubt at all in my mind that his death would be proclaimed as widely as possible by the Death Eaters if it had happened, because it would strike a deadly blow at the morale of those resisting the new regime. The boy who lived remains a symbol of everything for which we are fighting, the triumph of good, the power of innocence, the need to keep resisting. A mixture of gratitude and shame welled up in Harry. Had Lupin forgiven him then for the terrible things he had said when they last met? And what would you say to Harry if you knew he was listening right now, Romulus? I'd tell him we're all with him in spirit, said Lupin. 
and then he hesitated slightly, and I'd tell him to follow his instincts, which are good, and nearly always right. Oh, didn't I tell you, said Ron, surprised? Bill told me Lupin's living with Tonks again. Apparently, she's getting pretty big, too. And our usual update on those friends of Harry Potter's who are suffering for their allegiance, Lee was saying. Well, as regular listeners will know, several of the more outspoken supporters of Harry Potter have now been imprisoned, including Xenophilius Lovegood, erstwhile editor of The Quibbler, said Lupin. At least he's still alive, muttered Ron. We have also heard within the last few hours that Rubius Hagrid, all three of them gasps, and so nearly missed the rest of the sentence, well-known gamekeeper at Hogwarts School, has narrowly escaped arrest within the grounds of Hogwarts, where he is rumored to have hosted a support Harry Potter party in his house. However, Hagrid was not taken into custody and is, we believe, on the run. I suppose it helps when escaping Death Eaters if you got a 16-foot-high half-brother, asked Lee. It would tend to give you an advantage, agreed Lupin. May I just add that while we're here at Potter Watch, we all applaud Hagrid's spirit, but we would urge even the most devoted of Harry's supporters against following Hagrid's lead. Support Harry Potter parties are unwise in the present climate. Indeed they are, Romulus, said Lee, so we suggest that you continue to show your devotion to the man with the lightning scar by listening to Potter Watch. And now, let's move on to news concerning the wizard who has proven just as elusive as Harry Potter. We like to refer to him as the Chief Death Eater, and here to give us his views on some of the more insane rumors circulating about him, I'd like to introduce a new correspondent, Rodent. Rodent, said another familiar voice, and Harry and Ron and Hermione cried out together, Fred! No, is, is it George? It's Fred, I think, said Ron, leaning in closer, as whichever twin it was said. I'm not being rodent. No way. I told you I wanted to be rapier. Oh, all right, then. Rapier, could you please give us your take on the various stories that we've been hearing about the chief Death Eater? Yes, River, I can, said Fred. As our listeners will know, unless they've taken refuge at the bottom of a garden pond or somewhere similar, you know whose strategy of remaining in the shadows is creating a nice little climate of panic. Mind you, if all the alleged sightings of him are genuine, we must have a good 19 you-know-whos running around the place. Which suits them, of course, said Kingsley. The air of mystery is creating more terror than actually showing himself. Agreed, said Fred. So, people, let's try and calm down a bit. Things are bad enough without inventing stuff as well. For instance, this new idea that you-know-who can kill with a single glance from his eyes. That is a basilisk, listeners. One simple test. Check whether the thing that's glaring at you has got legs. If it has, it's safe to look into its eyes. Although, if it really is you-know-who, that's still likely to be the last thing you ever do. And for the first time in weeks and weeks, Harry was laughing. He could feel the weight of tension leaving him. And the rumors that he keeps being sighted abroad, asked Lee? Well, who wouldn't want a nice little holiday after all the hard work he's been putting in, asked Fred. Point is, people, don't get lulled into a false sense of security thinking he's out of the country. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But the fact remains is that he can move faster than Severus Snape when he's confronted with shampoo when he wants to, so don't count on him being a long way away if you're planning on taking any risk. I never thought I'd hear myself say it, but safety first. Thank you very much for those wise words, Rapier, said, Lu- said Lee. Listeners, that brings us to the end of another Potter Watch. We don't know when it will be possible to broadcast again, but you can be sure that we shall be back. Keep twilling those dials. The next password will be Mad-Eye. Keep each other safe. Keep faith. Good night. The radio's dial twirled and the lights behind the tuning panel went out. Harry, Ron, and Hermione were still beaming. Hearing familiar, friendly voices was an extraordinary tonic. Harry had become so used to their isolation, he had nearly forgotten that other people were resisting Voldemort. It was like waking from a long sleep. Good, eh? Said Ron happily. Brilliant, said Harry. 
It's so brave of them, said Hermione admiringly. If they were found, well, that's why they keep on the move, don't they? Said Ron, like us. But did you hear what Fred said? Asked Harry excitedly, now that the broadcast was over, his thoughts turning again towards his all-consuming obsession. He's abroad. He's still looking for the wand. I knew it. Harry, come on, Hermione. Why are you so determined not to admit it? Volt, Harry, no, demorts after the Elder Wand. The name's taboo. Ron bellowed, leaping to his feet as a loud crack sounded outside the tent. I told you, Harry. I told you we can't say it anymore. We've got to put correction back around us quickly. It's how they find... But Ron stopped talking, and Harry knew why. The sneak of soap on the table lit up and began to spin. They could hear voices coming nearer and nearer. Rough, excited voices. Ron pulled out the deluminator out of his pocket and clicked it. The lamps went out. Come out of there with your hands up, came a rasping voice through the darkness. We know you're in there. You've got a half a dozen wands pointing at you, and we don't care who we curse. And that is the badass. end of chapter 22. And that is badass, man. So since I kind of took us through it, go ahead and give us your takeaways, and I'll do the same, and we'll move right into chapter 23. Yeah, man, a lot of takeaways from that. Like, I, I know it didn't seem like maybe as action-packed as some of the other chapters, but there's a lot of information here. Um, so first, even starting at the beginning, all the way up at 425 at the top, so Hermione mentions her parents won't get kidnapped like Xenophilius or Luna because they're in Australia. So that going all the way kind of full circle back to where her plan was, um, that really just goes to keep showing more of her intellectuality that she thought that far ahead, that far ahead of the game. Um, Marvolo Gaunt, you know, you find out that he was a descendant of the Peverell's family. Um, and then next here, Harry thinks Marvolo Gaunt had the Resurrection Stone. Um, that was kind of a big one on 429 at the bottom. And then Harry realizes at 430 in the middle that Ignatius uh, Pepperell is actually his ancestor. That's huge. So now we kind of get some idea on how Harry wound up getting that invisibility cloak. Um, and then, of course, we have this massive full circle moment. And, and they're kind of figuring things out here. And they're thinking, just a thought, is that the ring is in the snitch. And that's what he was thinking he left him on page 431. Um, and then in 431 on the same, uh, same page, but more towards the middle, uh, so they go, uh, they realize that they say, you know who, so Voldemort, is after the Elder Wand. We're finally realizing what he's been pursuing the entire time. That's a major moment there. Um, and then going to 434, uh, so just a few pages later, remember, this is kind of a full circle moment. They repeat, I open at the close, but then Harry's wondering, what was the close? And Harry tried everything in Postle Tongue, but the golden ball would not open. What a foreshadowing moment for come what comes much later on, and that's on page 434 in the middle. Um, on 436 at the top, uh, there's a quote that says, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Like, what a foreshadowing moment that is. Like, that's a major foreshadowing moment. Um, and then well, we course, already saw you know, that Harry, quote. That, that's, that's the quote that was on uh, Harry and uh, Harry's parents' grave. So that quote's already came up before. Yeah, I'm just saying it's definitely full circle, and it's definitely kind of foreshadowing if you think of it in a certain way. Um, but then, of course, you know, as you kind of jump through here, uh, Harry, he has the visions, and uh, him and Voldemort that are sharing those visions are happening. 
um, and Harry winds up uh, with the visions uh, of an object that looked like a skull and something like a mountain that was more of a shadow than a substance. So that's kind of a little bit of a foreshadowing there. Um, but he keeps mentioning, you know, uh, that the connection, um, he's just seeing like these vague images uh, with the destruction of his wand that he thinks this might be why it's occurring. Um, but Ron, I did want to say like on page 436 and 437, he's kind of starting to take charge here from where he was like a little bit, I guess, kind of taking the back seat for a minute from where Hermione was pissed at him. So I thought that was a big takeaway. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, through Potter Watch, Ron, Hermione, and Harry learn Ted Tonks and Dirk Cresswell uh, have actually been murdered, which is massive. Uh, Ted Tonks, you know, Tonks's father. Um, and then the group learns on Potter Watch that Gornuk the Goblin was killed but dean thomas did actually escape so that was pretty big um and then we learned that in godly a muggle family of five was actually found dead in their homes um, and we also find out that it was a killing curse that killed the family and the remains of bethilda bagshot were found and that her body actually showed unmistakable signs of dark magic so that was big uh kingsley via potter watch you kind of get more of a sense of him and more of a sense of trust when he says on page 440, we're all human, aren't we? Every human life is worth the same and worth saving. So you definitely can see which side Kingsley's on. So I thought it was big. And then, uh, then you know, you get the sense of Lupin's talking on Potter Watch and saying how much it would mean if they lost Harry and why he thinks he's still alive. And he says, there is no doubt at all in my mind that his death would be proclaimed as widely as possible by Death Eaters if it happened, because it would strike a deadly blow to the morale of the resisting new regime. The boy who lived remains a symbol of everything for which we are fighting, the triumph of good, the power of innocence, and the need to keep resisting. So I thought that was a big moment because it shows how much... Um, even the order, even after, remember during the chapter, the bribe when Lupin left, like how much uh, Harry still means to him, even though they didn't get along at that moment, and how much Harry really means to this fight that's going on in the wizarding world. Um, the next few things I have, and then I'll turn it over to you. Uh, so, Lupin, uh, I just thought this was big. He just says, uh, tell him we're all with him in spirit is basically what Lupin was saying. So just kind of sent his regards, uh, almost assuming Harry was listening to him on that Potter watch. And then the group learns, of course, that uh, via Potter watch, Xenophilius is imprisoned and Hagrid is on the run. So that's big that Hagrid's on the run now. And the next password, I thought this was definitely full circle, is Mad-Eye. Um, and then... Here, uh, here's a pretty big one is page 444 at the bottom. Um, it says, didn't you hear Fred said he's abroad still looking for the wand? Uh, so it definitely shows where Voldemort is. And then, of course, we come to the close of this chapter where Voldemort, you know, that name's been tabooed. And, um, you know, Harry uses that name on page 445. And this is definitely kind of a sneak-a-scope uh, full circle moment with that sneakoscope as we've been seeing them all through the series as the sneakoscope on the table lights up and begins to spin on 445 and then that's when they say of course come out with your hands up 
and they're cornered at the moment. So those were all the takeaways I had from that chapter. What about you, man? So, yeah, I think that's very important to detail because it was kind of obscure the way it was kind of expressed there. Right now, we don't know for sure that Voldemort's after an Elder Wand. This is a theory that Harry has, and he hasn't been able to prove it yet because as of right now, Hermione and Ron are not really... It's not that they're not believing him. They're very skeptical that this is exactly what Voldemort's doing because they remember, Hermione doesn't believe in the Deathly Hallows at all. Ron's kind of more on the fence but leaning towards no. Harry, in his own mind, is absolutely certain that the Resurrection Stone's in the snitch, that he owns the real invisibility cloak, and that him, him and Voldemort know about the Elder One. So it's like, that's what he really does believe. Like, so it's almost, in a way, it's a credit to Harry, if, you know, without ruining anything going on later on, it's foreshadows here, of like Harry kind of being on the right track before everybody else. So even though Voldemort is abroad, as a reader, if you're right here in this section on chapter 22, we don't really know factually that that is what Voldemort is doing. It's still speculation. It's still not confirmed. It's just Harry's own hypothesis. So I want to make sure that that, that is right where we're at right now is, is very clear. But on top of that, just go through some of the big takeaways of the chapter, what I have. Uh, Ron makes a comparison to the Chamber of Secrets and how the Deathly Hallows could be real because the Chamber of Secrets is supposed to be a myth, and that turned out to be real. Uh, Hermione said that she found the Peverils in the Wizarding Genealogy book and that they were one of the earliest families to vanish extinct on the male line, but they could still have descendants under a different surname, which is a big foreshadow. Uh, Harry remembers Remarvelo Gaunt bragged to the ministry officials that he was descended from the Peverils. And on top of that, Hermione stays staunch in her stance that the Resurrection Stone does not exist and that it's all a fairy tale. But Harry's and, and what kind of frustrates Harry is because he... Like I said, he feels this sort of certainty, and he starts to think that if he were able to possess all these Hallows, he would be able to defeat Voldemort, whether Voldemort has Horcruxes or not. And that's kind of where we start to have this big debate between Hallows or Horcruxes. Hallows or Horcruxes? Like, which way are we going to go with this? Um, Harry thinks Dumbledore took the cloak from James because he wanted to examine it, thinking that it might have been the third Hallow. Uh, he thinks that the Ring of Marvel Gaunt is in the Snitch. And he thinks Voldemort is after the Elder Ron. Well, we're going to see how right or wrong he is later on. But uh, talking about Potter Watch that you were mentioning earlier, this is the program that Ron's been trying to get on the radio. But this is the only one that isn't censored by the Ministry or Death Eaters. This is where we're going to leave. This is the station that we hear kind of like the true story of what's going on that's not been you know fixed by the Death Eaters or the Ministry, right? So, yes, of course, like you mentioned, Ted Tongster, Cresswell, Gornuck the Goblin were all killed. But not only was Dean Thomas, did he escape, but also Griphook escaped too, and that's a big moment for later on, because he's going to come into play later. Uh, the Death Eater has been killing the Muggles for sport. I thought this was pretty cool. Kingsley tells listeners to try and put protective charms around Muggle dwellings in their area. Like, take the extra, you know, effort and initiative, because you don't know whose lives you could save if you do something very, sim like, very simple like that. Uh... Lee Jordan tells Kingsley that he would vote for Kingsley to be the Minister of Magic if they ever get out of this mess. I found that ironic because of what happens later after after this whole story is over. Uh, Lupin says on the show that Harry should trust his instincts, which are good and nearly always right. Which, you know, is a little bit of a foreshadow and a full circle moment. Because it gives us the sense that Lupin has forgiven Harry for the kind of run-in that they've had back in, like you had mentioned, Chapter the Bribe. Um, on top of what you mentioned, Hagrid escaped arrest. He's on the run. 
And then, like you mentioned, just to kind of close it out and get into your chapter here that we're going to do, chapter 23, uh, yeah, Harry fucks up and says Voldemort, and the <laughs> Death Eaters surround him. Like, like they, they get, they, well, not Death Eaters, I guess the Snatchers is a better term for it. But yeah, he fucks up, says the taboo name Voldemort, and now they're all surrounded with wands pointing directly at the tent. And with that, man, I'll go ahead and uh, kind of let you go into it. Well, before I do, I'm actually going to go ahead, if it's cool, just to talk about some bullet points before I have you go into the actual yeah. chapter to kind of make it a little bit easier. Cool. So this kind of starts off on page 446, chapter 23, Malfoy Manor. Uh, I think this is pretty cool. Hermione cursed Harry in the face to disguise him. That was really important because it's going to kind of create some uncertainty. And that uncertainty is where all the... Uh, the hesitations help them out a lot, talking about Harry, Ron, and Hermione, and Dean, and, and uh, Griphook as well. But anyways, uh, page 447, Fenrir Greyback is in charge of the group that has Harry, Hermione, and Ron surrounded. Uh, they are, you know, page 448, they're checking names and blood status. Harry tells them that his name is Vernon Dudley. Ron says Stan Shunpike, and they know he's lying, and they hit him in the mouth, and he changes to Barney Weasley. And Hermione says she's Penelope Clearwater. So now, you know, we've got an issue because <laughs> he already lied to him. If he would have said something better, we might not have gotten into this in the first place. But now he he not only, Rhonda didn't only fuck up by saying Stan Shumpike. On top of that, he fucked up and said he was a Weasley, which are already on kind of like the list of blood traders. So, yeah. you know, here goes Ron again, just kind of fucking things up for the group. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> uh, on page 449, like I said, like Dean Thomas is one of their prisoners as well. Uh, page 450. I thought Harry was smooth as butter with his lies, man. He says he's a Slytherin, and when they ask him where the common <laughs> room is, he doesn't miss a beat. Tells him exactly where it is, and the Snatchers were not yeah, expecting that, man. Then they ask who his father was, and he says like he works in the ministry in uh, that department there, and like the second, the, I would say like, the second in command outside of Fenrir Greyback was a Snatcher called Scabior. And he starts to think that there is a Dudley that works there. So, like, Harry's, like, lying his ass off. And, like, that's not just like, shit, man, I, I do think there is a Dudley in that in that department. <laughs> like, like what? <laughs> this is all made up out of his ass. Like, that's crazy. But uh, <laughs> then the last thing I have, I'll let Chase take it through the end of the chapter. On page 452, the Daily Prophet gives Hermione away with her picture in it. And now they know, or they're pretty certain, they captured Harry Potter. And with that being said, I'll, let, I'll go ahead and let Chase take it from page 453 all the way through the rest of the chapter. Yeah, man. And it's kind of like with Ron. It's like, will you please stop talking? Just <laughs> let your girlfriend do the work, please. <laughs> let's just let your girlfriend be the brains of the operation. Okay, let's take it from here, man. Yeah, I, I said put on page 453. Okay. On uh, at the top, I was gonna say kind of in the middle where it says "to hell with the ministry." We're gonna take them to you know who. Okay. But yeah. Perfect. To hell with the ministry. You growled Grayback. They take the credit, and we won't get a look in. I say we take them straight to you know who. Will you summon? I'm er, said Scabier, sounding awed, terrified. No, snarled Grayback. I haven't got. They say he's using Malfoy's place as base. We'll take the boy there. Harry thought he knew why Greyback was not calling Voldemort. The werewolf might be allowed to wear Death Eater robes when they wanted to use him, but only Voldemort's inner circle were branded with the dark mark. Greyback had not been granted this highest honor. Harry's scar seared again. 
and he rose into the night flying straight up to the window at the very top of the tower. Completely sure it's him? Because if it ain't Greyback, we're dead. Who's in charge here? Roared Greyback, covering his moment of inadequacy. I say that's Potter, and him plus his wand, and that's 200,000 galleons right there. But if you're too gutless to come along, any of you, it's all for me, and with any luck, I'll get the girl thrown in. The window was the merest slit in the black rock, not big enough for a man to enter. A skeletal figure was just visible through it, curled beneath a blanket, dead or sleeping. All right, said Scabier. All right, we're in. And what about the rest of him, Greyback? What'll we do with him? Might as well take the lot. We've got two mudbloods. That's another ten galleons. Give me the sword as well. If they're rubies, that's another small fortune right here. Right there. The prisoners were dragged to their feet. Harry could hear Hermione's breathing, fast and terrified. Grab hold and make it tight. I'll do it, Potter, said Greyback, seizing a fistful of Harry's hair. Harry could feel his long yellow nails scratching his scalp. On three. One, two, three. They disapparated. Pulling the prisoners with them, Harry struggled, trying to throw off Greyback's hand, but it was hopeless. Ron and Hermione were squeezed tightly against him on either side. He could not separate from the group, and as the breath was squeezed out of him, his scar seared more painfully still. As he forced himself through the slits of a window, like a snake and landed lightly as vapor inside the cell-like room. The prisoners lurked into one another as they landed in a country lane. Harry's eyes still puffy took a moment to acclimatize that he saw a pair of wrought iron gates at the foot of what looked like a long drive. He experienced the tiniest trickle of relief. The worst had not happened yet. Voldemort was not here. He was, Harry knew, for he was fighting to resist the vision in some strange fortress-like place at the top of a tower. How long it would take Voldemort to get to this place once he knew that Harry was here was another matter. One of the snatchers strode to the gates and shook them. How do we get in? They're locked. Greyback, I can't. Blimey. He whipped his hand away in fright. The iron was contorting, twisting itself out of the abstract furrows and coils into the frightening face, which spoke in clanging, echoing voice. State your purpose. We've got Potter, Greyback roared triumphantly. We captured Harry Potter. The gate swung open. Come on said Greyback to his men, and the prisoners were shunted through the gates and up the drive between the high hedges that muffled their footsteps. Harry saw a ghostly white shape above him and realized it was an albino peacock. He stumbled and was dragged onto his feet by Greyback. Now he was staggering along sideways, tied back to back to the four other prisoners. Closing his puffy eyes, he allowed the pain in his scar to overcome him for a moment, wanting to know what Voldemort was doing, whether he knew yet that Harry was caught. The emancipated figure stirred beneath its thin blanket and rolled over toward him, eyes opening in a skull of a face. The frail man sat up, great sunken eyes fixed upon him, upon Voldemort, and then he smiled. Most of his teeth were gone. So you have come. I thought you would. One day. But your your journey was pointless. I never had it. You lie. As Voldemort's anger throbbed inside him, Harry's scar threatened to burst with pain, and he wrenched his mind to his own body, fighting to remain present as the prisoners were pushed over the gravel. 
Light spilled out over all of them. What is this? said a woman's cold voice. We're here to see who who must not be named, rasped Greyback. Who are you? You know me. There was a resentment in the werewolf's voice. Fenrir Greyback, we've caught Harry Potter. Greyback seized Harry and dragged him around to face the light, forcing the other prisoners to shuffle around too. I know he's swollen, man, but it's him, piped up Scabier. If you look a bit closer, you'll see his scar. And this here, see, the girl, the mudblood who's been traveling around with him, ma'am. There's no doubt it's I'm, we've got its wand as well, er, ma'am. Through his puffy eyelids, Harry saw Narcissa Malfoy scrutinizing his swollen face. Scabier thrust the blackthorn wand at her, and she raised her eyebrows. Bring them in, she said. Harry and the others were shoved and kicked up broad stone steps into the hallway and lined with portraits. Follow me, said Narcissa, leading the way across the hall. My son Draco is home for the, his Easter holidays. If that is Harry Potter, he will know. The drawing room dazzled after the darkness outside. Even with his eyes almost closed, Harry could make out the wide proportions of the room. A crystal chandelier hung from the ceiling, more portraits against the dark purple walls. Two figures rose from the chairs in front of an ornate marble fireplace as the prisoners were forced into the room by the snatchers. What is this? The dreadfully familiar drawling voice of Lucius Malfoy fell on Harry's ears. He was panicking now. He could see no way out, and it was easier as his fear mounted to block out Voldemort's thoughts, though his scar was still burning. They say they've got Potter, said Narcissus' cool voice. Draco, come here. Harry did not dare look directly at Draco, but saw him obliquely, a figure slightly taller than he was rising from an armchair, his face a pale and pointed blur beneath white blonde hair. Greyback forced the prisoners to turn again, so at to place Harry directly beneath the chandelier. "'Well, boy,' rasped the werewolf. Harry was facing a mirror over the fireplace, a great gilded thing, and an intricately scrolled fame, frame. Through the slits of his eyes, he saw his own reflection for the first time since leaving Grimwald Place. His face was huge, shiny, and pink, every feature distorted by Hermione's jinx. His black hair reached his shoulders, and there was a dark shadow around his jaw. Had he not known that it was he who stood there, he would have wondered who was wearing his glasses. He resolved not to speak, for his voice was sure to give away, yet he still avoided eye contact with Draco as the latter approached. Well, Draco, said Lucius Malfoy, he sounded avid. Is it? Is it Harry Potter? I... I can't... I, can't be sure, said Draco. He was keeping his distance from Greyback and seemed as scared of looking at Harry as Harry was looking at him. But look at him carefully. Look. Come closer. Harry had never heard Lucius so excited. Draco, if we are the ones who hand Potter over to the Dark Lord, everything will be for... Now, we won't be forgetting who actually caught him, I hope, Mr. Malfoy, said Greyback menacingly. Of course not, of course not, said Lucius impatiently. He approached Harry himself, came so close that Harry could see the usually languid pale face in sharp detail even through his swollen eyes. With his face a puffy mask, Harry felt as though he was peering out from between the bars of the cage. What did you do to him? Lucius asked Greyback. How did he get in this state? That wasn't us. Looks more like a stinging jinx to me, said Lucius. 
His gray eyes raked Harry's forehead. There's something there, he whispered. It could be the scar stretched tight. Draco, come here, look properly. What do you think? Harry saw Draco's face up close now, right beside his father's. They were extraordinarily alike, except that while his father looked beside himself with excitement, Draco's expression was full of reluctance and even fear. I don't know, he said, and he walked away toward the fireplace where his mother stood watching. We had better be certain, Lucius, Narcissa called to her husband in her cold, clear voice, completely sure that it is Potter, before we summoned the Dark Lord. They say this is his. She was looking closely at the Blackthorn Wand, but it does not resemble Ollivander's description. If we are mistaken, if we call the Dark Lord here for nothing, remember what he did to Raoul and Dolahob. What about the mudblood then? growled Greyback. Harry was nearly thrown off his feet as the Snatchers forced the prisoners to swivel around again so that light fell on Hermione instead. Wait, said Narcissa sharply. Yes, yes. She was in Madame Malcolm's with Potter. I saw her picture in the Prophet. Look, Draco, isn't it the Granger girl? I... maybe... yeah. But then that's the Weasley boy, shouted Lucius, striding around the bound prisoners to face Ron. It's them, Potter's friends. Draco, look at him. Isn't it Arthur Weasley's son? What's his name? Yeah, said Draco again, his back to the prisoners. It could be. The drawing room door opened behind Harry. A woman spoke, and the sound of the voice wound Harry's fear to an even higher pitch. What is this? What's happened, sissy? Bellatrix Lestrange walked slowly around the prisoners and stopped on Harry's right, staring at Hermione, though her heavily lidded, light, lidded eyes. But surely, she said quietly, this is the mudblood girl. This is Granger. Yes, yes, it's Granger, cried Lucius, and beside her we think Potter. Potter and his friends caught at last! Potter? shrieked Bellatrix, and she backed away. The better to take in Harry. Are you sure? Well then, the Dark Lord must be informed at once. She dragged back her left sleeve. Harry saw the dark mark burned into the flesh of her arm and knew that she was about to touch it to summon her beloved master. I was about to call him, said Lucius, and his hand actually closed upon Bellatrix's wrist, preventing her from touching the mark. I shall summon him, Bella. Potter has been brought to my house, and it is therefore upon my authority. Your authority, she sneered, attempting to wrench her hand from his grasp. You lost your authority when you lost your wand, Lucius. How dare you take your hands off me? This is nothing to do with you. You did not capture the boy. Begging your pardon, Mr. Malfoy, interjected Greyback. But it's us that caught Potter, and it's us that'll be claiming the gold. Gold, laughed Bellatrix, still attempting to throw off her brother-in-law, her free hand, groping in her pocket for her wand. Take your gold, filthy scavenger! What do you want with gold? I seek only the honor of his, uh... She stopped struggling, her dark eyes fixed upon something Harry could not see. Jubilant at her contemplations, Lucius threw her hand from him and ripped up his own sleeve. Stop! shrieked Bellatrix. Do not touch it. We shall all perish if the Dark Lord comes now. Lucius froze, his index finger hovering over his own mark. Bellatrix strode over Harry's limited line of vision. What is that? he heard her say. Sword 
grunted an out-of-sight snatcher. Give it to me. It's not your misuse, it's mine. I reckon I found it. There was a bang and a flash of red light. Harry knew that the snatcher had been stunned. There was a roar of anger from his fellows. Scabier drew his wand. What do you think you're playing at, woman? Stupefy! She screamed. Stupefy! There were no match for her. Even though there were four of them against one, she was a witch. As Harry knew, with the progenious skill and no conscience, they fell where they stood. All except Greyback, who had been forced into a kneeling position. His arms outstretched out of the corner of his eyes. Harry saw Bellatrix bearing down upon the werewolf. The sword of Gryffindor gripped tightly in her hand, her face waxen. Where did you get this sword? She whispered to Greyback as she pulled his wand out of his unresisting grip. How dare you? He snarled, his mouth the only thing that he could move as he was forced to gaze upon her. He barred his pointed teeth. Release me, woman! Where did you find this sword? She repeated, brandishing it in his face. Snape sent it to me, my vault in Gringotts. It was in their tent, rasped Greyback. Release me, I say. She waved her wand and the werewolf sprang to his feet, but appeared too wary to approach her. He prowled behind an armchair, his filthy curved nails, nails clutching its back. Draco, move the scum outside, said Bellatrix, indicating the unconscious men. If you haven't got the guts to finish them, then leave it to me. Leave it to them in the courtyard for me. Don't you dare speak to Draco-like, said Narcissa furiously, but Bellatrix screamed, Be quiet! The situation is graver than you can possibly imagine, sissy. We have a very serious problem. She stood panting slightly, looking down at the sword examining it at its hilt. Then she turned to look at the silent prisoners. If it is indeed Potter, he must not be harmed, she muttered, more to herself than to the others. The Dark Lord wishes to dispose of Potter himself. But if he finds out, I must... I must know. She turned back to her sister again. The prisoners must be placed in the cellar Why I think what to do. This is my house, Bella. You don't give orders and might do it! You have no idea of the danger we are in, shrieked Bellatrix. She looked frightening mad. A thin stream of fire issued from her wand and burned a hole in the carpet. Narcissa hesitated for a, minute, for a minute and then addressed the werewolf. Take these prisoners down to the cellar, Greyback. Wait, said Bellatrix sharply. All except, all except for the mudblood. Greyback gave a, gaunt, a grunt of pleasure. No, shouted Ron. You can't have me. Keep me. You can have me. Keep me. Bellatrix hit him across the face. The blow echoed around the room. If she dies under questioning, I'll take you next, she said. Blood traitor is next to mudblood in my book. Take them upstairs. Greyback, and make sure they are secured, but do nothing more to them yet. She threw Greyback's wand back to him, then took a short silver knife from under her robes. She cut Hermione free from the other prisoners and dragged her by her hair into the middle of the room, while Greyback forced the rest of them to shuffle across to another door into a passageway his wand held out in front of him, projecting an invisible and irresistible force. Reckon she'll let me have a bit of the girl when she's finished with her? Greyback crooned as he forced them along the corridor. I'd say I'll get a bite or two, wouldn't you, Ginger? 
Harry could feel Ron shaking. They were forced down a steep flight of stairs, still tied back to back in danger of slipping and breaking their necks at any moment. At the bottom was a heavy door. Greyback unlocked it with the tap of his wand, then forced them into a danky, musty room and left them in total darkness. The echoing bang of the slammed cellar door had not died away before there was a terrible, drawn-out scream from directly above them. Hermione! Ron bellowed, and he stared to writhe and struggle against the ropes, tying them together so that Harry staggered. Hermione! Be quiet, Harry said. Shut up, Ron. We need to work out a way. Hermione! Hermione! We need a plan. Stop yelling. We need to get these ropes off. Harry came a whisper through the darkness. Ron, is that you? Ron stopped shouting. There was a sound of movement close by them, and then Harry saw a shadow moving closer. Harry? Ron? Luna? Yes, it's me. Oh, no. I don't want you to be caught. Luna, can you help us get these ropes off? said Harry. Oh, yes. I expect so. There's an old nail. We use it if we need to break anything. Just a moment. Hermione screamed again from overhead, and they could hear Bellatrix screaming too, but her words were inaudible, for Ron shouted again, Hermione! Hermione! Mr. Ollivander? Harry could hear Luna saying, Mr. Ollivander, have you got the nail? If you just move over a little bit, I think it was beside the water jug. She was back within seconds. You'll need to stay still, she said. Harry could feel her digging to the rope's tough fibers to work the knots free from upstairs. They heard Bellatrix's voice. I'm going to ask you again. Where did you get this sword? Where? We found it. We found it. Please. Hermione screamed again. Ron struggled harder than ever and the rusty nail slipped onto Harry's wrist. Ron, please stay still, Luna whispered. I can't see what I'm doing. My pocket, said Ron. In my pocket, there's a deal illuminator, and it's full of light. A few seconds later, there was a click, and the luminescent spheres of the deluminator had sucked from the lamps in the tent and flew into the cellar. Unable to rejoin their sources, they simply hung there, like tiny suns, flooding the underground room with light. Harry saw Luna, all eyes in her white face, the motionless figure of Ollivander and the wand maker, curled up on the floor in the corner. Cranning around, he caught sight of their fellow prisoners, Dean and Griffook, the goblin, who seemed barely conscious, kept standing by ropes that bound him to the humans. Oh, that's much easier. Thanks, Ron, said Luna, and she began hacking at their bindings again. Hello, Dean. From above came Bellatrix's voice. You are lying. Filthy mudblood. I know it. You have been inside my vault at Gringotts. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Another terrible scream. Hermione, what else did you take? What else have you got? Tell me the truth or I swear I shall run you through with this knife. There. Harry felt the ropes fall away and turned, rubbing his wrist to see Ron running around the cellar, looking up at the low ceiling, searching for a trap door. Dean, his face bruised and bloody, said, Thanks. To Luna and stood there shivering, but Griffook sank onto the cellar floor, looking groggy and disoriented. Many welts across his swarthy face. Ron was now trying to disapparate without a wand. There's no way out, Ron, said Luna, watching her fruitless efforts. The cellar is completely escape proof. I've tried. 
at first, Mr. Ollivander has been here for a long time. He's tried everything. Hermione was screaming again. The sound went through Harry like physical pain. Barely conscious of the fierce prickling of his scar, he too started to run around the cellar, feeling the walls for hardly knew what, knowing in his heart that it was useless. What else did you take? What else? Answer me! Crucio! Hermione's screams echoed off the walls upstairs. Ron was half sobbing as he pounded the walls with his fist, and Harry, in utter desperation, seized Hagrid's pouch from around his neck and groped inside it. He pulled out Dumbledore's snitch and shook it, hoping for he did not know what. Nothing happened. He waved the broken halves of the phoenix wand, but they were lifeless. The mere fragment fell sparkling to the floor, and he saw a gleam of brightest blue. Dumbledore's eyes... Dumbledore's eye was gazing at him out of the mirror. Help us! He yelled at it in mad desperation. We're in the cellar of Malfoy Manor. Help us! The eye blinked and was gone. Hare was not even sure that it had really been there. He tilted the shard in the mirror this way and that and saw nothing reflected there. But the walls and the ceiling of their prison and upstairs, Hermione was screaming worse than ever. And next to him, Ron was bellowing, Hermione! Hermione! How did you get into my vault? They heard Bellatrix scream. Did that dirty little goblin in the cellar help you? We only met him tonight, Hermione sobbed. We've never been inside the vault. It, it isn't a real sword. It's a copy. Just a copy. A copy, screeched Bellatrix. Oh, a likely story. But we can find out easily, came Lucius's voice. Draco, fetch the goblin. He can tell us whether the sword is real or not. Harry dashed across the cellar to where Griffhook was huddled on the floor. Griffhook, he whispered into the goblin's pointed ear. You must tell them that the sword's a fake. They mustn't know it's a real one. Griffhook, please. He could hear someone scuttling down the cellar steps next moment. Draco's shaking voice spoke from behind the door. Stand back. Line up against the back wall. Don't try anything, or I'll kill you. They did as they were bidden. As the lock turned, Ron clicked the illuminator and the lights whisked back into his pocket, restoring the cellar's darkness. The door flew open. Malfoy marched inside, one held out in front of him, pale and determined. He seized the little goblin by the arm and backed out again, dragging Griffhook with him. The door slammed shut, and at the same moment, a loud crack echoed in the cellar. Ron clicked the illuminator. Three balls of light flew back into the air from his pocket, revealing Dobby. The house elf, who had just apparated into their mist. Stop! Harry hit Ron on the arm and stopped him shouting. And Ron looked terrified at his mistake. Footsteps crossed the ceiling overhead, Draco marching Griffhook to Bellatrix. Dobby's enormous tennis ball-shaped eyes were wide. He was trembling from his feet to the tips of his ears. He was back in the home of his old masters, and it was clear that he was petrified. Harry Potter? He squeaked in the tiniest quiver of a voice. Dobby has come to rescue you. But how did you... An awful scream drowned Harry's words. Hermione was being tortured again. He cut to the essentials. You can disapparate out of the cellar? He asked Dobby, who nodded, his ears flapping. And you can take humans with you? Dobby nodded again. Right, Dobby. I want you to grab Luna, Dean, and Mr. Ollivander and take them. And take them to... 
Building floors, said Ron. Shell cottage on the outskirts of Tinworth. The elf nodded for a third time. And then come back, said Harry. Can you do that, Dobby? Of course, Harry Potter, whispered the little elf. He hurried over to Mr. Ollivander, who appeared to be barely conscious. He took one of the wand maker's hands in his own and then held out the other to Luna and Dean, neither of whom moved. Harry, we want to help you, Luna whispered. We can't leave you here, said Dean. Go, both of you. We'll see you at Bill and Floors. As Harry spoke, his scar burned worse than ever, and for a few seconds, he looked down not upon the wand maker, but on another man, who was just as old, just as thin, but laughing scornfully. <laughs> Kill me then, Voldemort. I welcome death, but my death will not bring you what you seek. <laughs> there is so much you do not understand. He felt Voldemort's fury, but as Hermione screamed again, he shut it out, returning to the cellar in the horror of his own presence. Go! Harry beseeched Luna and Dean. Go! We will follow. Just go! They caught hold of the elf's outstretched fingers, and there was another loud crack. And Dobby, Luna, Dean, and Ollivander vanished. What was that? shouted Lucius Malfoy from over their heads. Did you hear that? What was the noise in the cellar? Harry and Ron stared at each other. Draco! No! Call Wormtail! Make him go and check! Footsteps crossed the room overhead, and then there was a silence. Harry knew that the people in the drawing room were listening for more noises from the cellar. We're going to have to try and tackle him, he whispered to Ron. They had no choice. The moment anyone entered the room and saw the absence of three prisoners, they were lost. Leave the lights on, Harry added, and they heard someone descending the steps outside the door. They backed against the wall and on the other side of it. Stand back, came Wordzell's voice. Stand away from the door. I am coming in. The door flew open. For a split second, Wormtail gazed into the apparently empty cellar ablaze with the light from the three miniature suns floating in midair. Then Harry and Ron launched themselves upon him. Ron seized Wormtail's wand arm and forced it upward. Harry slapped a hand to his mouth, muffling his voice. Silently, they struggled. Wormtail's wand emitted sparks. His silver hand closed around Harry's throat. What is it, Wormtail? called Lucius Malfoy from above. Nothing, Ron called back in a passable imitation of Wormtail's wheezing voice. All fine. Harry could barely breathe. You're going to kill me? Harry choked, attempted to prise off the metal fingers. After I saved your life, you owe me, Wormtail. The silver fingers slackened. Harry had not expected it. He wrenched himself free, astonished, keeping his hand over Wormtail's mouth. He saw the rat-like man's small watery eyes widen with fear and surprise. He seemed just as shocked as Harry at what had been done. At the tiny, merciful impulse, it had, been, it had betrayed, and he continued to struggle more powerfully, as though to undo the moment of weakness. And we'll have that, whispered Ron, tugging Wormtail's wand from his other hand. Wandless, helpless Pettigrew's pupils dilated in terror. His eyes had slid from Harry's face something else. His own silver fingers were moving inexorably toward his own throat. No! Without passing to think, Harry tried to drag back the hand, but there was no stopping it. The silver tool that Voldemort had given his most cowardly servant had turned upon its disarmed and useless owner. Pettigrew was reaping his reward for his hesitation, his moment of pity. He was being strangled before their eyes. No! Ron had released Wormtail too, and together he and Harry tried to pull the crushing metal fingers from around Wormtail's throat, but it was no use. Pettigrew was turning blue. 
Relatio, said Ron, pointing out the wand in the silver hand, but nothing happened. Pettigrew dropped to his knees, and at the same moment, Hermione gave a dreadful scream from overheard. Wormtail's eyes rolled upward in his purple face. He gave a last twitch and was still. Harry and Ron looked at each other, and then leaving Wormtail's body on the floor behind them, ran upstairs and back into the shadowy passageway leading to the drawing room. Cautiously, they crept along it until they reached the drawing room door, which was ajar. Now they had a clear view of Bellatrix looking down at Griphook, who was holding Gryffindor's sword in his long-fingered hands. Hermione was lying at Bellatrix's feet. She was barely stirring. Well, Bellatrix said to Griphook, is it the true sword? Harry waited, holding his breath, fighting against the prickling of his scar. No, said Griffook. It's a fake. Are you sure? panted Bellatrix. Quite sure. Yes, said the goblin. Relief broke across her face, all tension drained from it. Good, she said, and with a casual flick of her wand, she slashed another deep cut in the goblin's face, and he dropped with a yell at her feet. She kicked him aside. And now, she said in a voice that burst with triumph, we call the Dark Lord. And she pushed back her sleeve and touched her forefinger to the dark mark. At once, Harry's scar felt as though it had split open again. His true surroundings vanished. He was Voldemort, and the skeletal wizard before him was laughing toothlessly at him. He was enraged at the summon he felt. He had warned them. He had told them to summon him for nothing less than Potter, if they were mistaken. Kill me then, demanded the old man. You will not win. You cannot win. The one will never, ever be yours. And Voldemort's fury broke. A burst of green light filled the prison room and the frail body was lifted from its hard bed and then fell back lifeless. And Voldemort returned to the window, his wrath barely controllable. They would suffer his retribution if they had no good reason for calling him back. And I think, said Bellatrix's voice, we can dispose of the mudblood, Greyback. Take her if you want her. No! Ron had burst into the drawing room. Bellatrix looked around, shocked. She turned her wand to face Ron instead. Expelliarmus! He roared, pointing Wormtail's wand at Bellatrix, and hers flew into the air and was caught by Harry, who had sprinted after Ron. Lucius, Narcissa, Draco, Greyback wheeled about. Harry yelled, Stupefy! And Lucius Malfoy collapsed onto the hearth. Jets of light flew from Draco's Narcissa and Greyback's wands. Harry threw himself to the floor, rolling behind a sofa to avoid them. Stop her, she dies! Panting, Harry peered around the edge of the sofa. Bellatrix was supporting Hermione, who seemed to be unconscious, and was holding her short silver knife to Hermione's throat. Drop your wands, she whispered. Drop them, or we'll see exactly how filthy her blood is. Ron stood rigid, clutching Wormtail's wand. Harry straightened up, still holding Bellatrix's. I said drop them! She screeched, pressing the blade into Hermione's throat. Harry saw beads of blood appear there. All right, he shouted. He dropped Bellatrix's wand onto the floor at his feet. Ron did the same with Wormtails, both raised with their hands to the shoulder height. Good, she leered. Draco, pick them up. The Dark Lord is coming. Harry Potter, your death approaches. Harry knew it. His scar was bursting with pain of it, and he could feel Voldemort flying through the sky from far away, over a dark and stormy sea, and soon he would be close enough to apparate to them, and Harry could see no way out. 
Now, said Bellatrix softly as Draco hurried back to her with the wands. Sissy, I think we ought to tie these little heroes up again while Great Peck takes care of the Miss Mudblood. I am sure Dark Lord will not begrudge you, girl. You the girl. Greyback, after what you have done tonight. At the last word, there was a peculiar grinding noise from above. All of them looked upward in time to see the crystal chandelier tremble. Then with a creak and an ominous jingling, it began to fall. Bellatrix was directly beneath it. Dropping Hermione, she threw herself aside with a scream. The chandelier crashed to the floor in an explosion of crystal and chains, and the falling on top of Hermione and the goblin, who still clutched the sword of Gryffindor. Glittering shards of crystal flew in all directions. Draco doubled over, his hands covering his bloody face. As Ron ran to pull Hermione out of the wreckage, Harry took his chance. He leapt over the on chair and wrested the three wands from Draco's grip, pointed all of them at Greyback, and yelled, STUPEFY! The werewolf was lifted off his feet by the triple spell, flew up to the ceiling, and then smashed to the ground. As Narcissa dragged Draco out of the way of further harm, Bellatrix sprang to her feet, her hair flying. She brandished the silver knife, but Narcissa had directed her wand at the doorway. Dobby! She screamed, and even Bellatrix froze. You! You dropped the chandelier! The tiny elf trotted into the room, his shaking finger pointed at his old mistress. You must not hurt Harry Potter, he squeaked. Kill him, sissy! She shrieked Bellatrix. But there was another loud crack, and Narcissa's wand too flew into the air and landed on the other side of the room. You dirty little monkey, bawled Bellatrix. How dare you take a witch's wand? How dare you to find your masters? Dobby has no master, squealed the elf. Dobby is a free elf, and Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. Harry's scar was blinding with him pain. Dimly, he knew that they had moments. Seconds before Voldemort was within them. Run, catch, and go, he yelled, throwing one of the wands to him. And then he bent down to tug Griffhook out from under the chandelier, hoisting a groaning goblin who still clung to the sword over one shoulder. Harry seized Dobby's hands and spun to the spot to disapparate. As he turned into the darkness, he caught one last view of the drawing room of the pale, frozen figure of Narcissa and Draco, of the streak of red that was Ron's hair, and a blur of flying silver as Bellatrix's knife flew across the room as the place where he was vanishing. Bill and Floors, Shell College, Shell Cottage, Bill and Floors. He had disappeared into the unknown. All he could do was repeat the name of the destination and hope that it would suffice to take him there. The pain in his forehead pierced him and the weight of the goblin bore down upon him. He could feel the blade of Gryffindor's sword bumping against his back. Dobby's hand jerked in his, and he wondered whether the elf was trying to take charge to pull them in the right direction and tried to be squeezing fingers to indicate that was fine with him. And then they hit solid earth and smelled salty air. Harry fell to his knees, relinquished Dobby's hand, and attempted to lower Griffith gently to the ground. Are you all right? He said to the goblin, stirred up, but Griffith merely whimpered. Harry squinted around through the darkness, and they seemed to be a cottage short away away under the wide, starry sky, and he thought he saw movement outside it. Dobby, is the shell cottage? He whispered, clutching the two wines he had brought from Malfoy's, ready to fight if he needed to. Have we come to the right place, Dobby? He looked around. The little elf stood feet from him. 
Dobby! Velf swayed slightly. Stars reflected in his wide, shining eyes. Together, he and Harry looked down at the silver hilt of the knife protruding from the elf's heaving chest. Dobby! No. Help! Harry bellowed toward the cottage, toward the people moving there. Help! He did not know or care whether they were wizards or what muggles. Friends or foes, all he cared about was the dark stain that was spreading across Dobby's front, that he had stretched out his thin arms to Harry with a look of supplication. Harry caught him and laid him sideways on the cool grass. Dobby, no, don't die. Don't die. The elves' eyes found him, and his lips trembled with the effort to form words. Harry? Potter? And then with a little shudder, the elf became quite still, and his eyes were nothing more than great glassy orbs, sprinkled with light from the stars they could not see. Pretty intense chapter, man. Pretty powerful moment. And uh, with that, I'm going to let you take it away and tell me what big takeaways you had from this pretty powerful moment in the book, I would say, this really powerful chapter that we have here. What do you think? It certainly was. I do think that uh, <laughs> Chase forgets when he screams into the microphone, my ears bleed. But <laughs> other than that, oh, yes. the actual, oh, yes. <laughs> the actual <laughs> chapter itself... Um, it was really good man like there was not only was there some action in there there was some heartbreak a little bit it was, it was a good there was a lot to it so some of the chapters that I or takeaways I had from that specific chapter to kind of start back at the very beginning of it because this is one of the longer chapters in the book was this like a 30 some odd page chapter it was a 33 page chapter I believe and uh, to kind of go back to the very beginning before we even get to Malfoy Manor like we learned that Fenrir Greyback actually doesn't have a dark mark which is kind of cool um, mm-hmm. They take Harry, Hermione, Ron, and Dean to Malfoy Manor. Uh, I think Hermione did a great job because Harry doesn't even recognize herself himself in the mirror. Remember, he gets to like the Malfoy living room and like he looks at himself in like the mirror and he doesn't even recognize him. Uh, Draco didn't want to give Harry, Ron, and Hermione up, even though he knew it was them. That's going to be a foreshadow. That's going to come big to play later on. Uh, Bellatrix, she lost her mind and attacked the Snatchers because the Sword of Gryffindor was supposed to be in her vault. A little bit of a foreshadow there. Thought that was a big moment. Uh, Bellatrix tortures Hermione. That's <laughs> not fun. And you know, Ron was losing his mind, yeah. screaming. And then thankfully, uh, apparently Chase was screaming too, and my ears were bleeding. So I, I felt like I was feeling it, the pain, just like Hermione. I felt like you felt I was, like you were there. That was the idea. It was like you it, were. It put me. There, it put me in, in the, the in the torture chamber. You basically were Hermione. I know. Glad you <laughs> experienced the same pain. The torture chamber, man. But uh, yeah, I thought it was cool that, that we also got a full circle and we learned that they were keeping Luna at Malfoy Manor, not Azkaban, so that was that full circle moment. Uh, Harry thinks, well, what what Harry thinks is Dumbledore's eye in Sirius's old mirror comes back into play, which is, again, that's going to, that's a foreshadow for now, but it'll come to play later. I'm going to figure it out. We'll get a resolution to that eventually. Uh, Dobby appears in, in, you know, classic. Harry the hero has Dobby take Luna, Dean, and Ollivander first, which almost ruins everything. <laughs> but yeah. anyways, because uh, yeah, we'll learn here in a second. But anyways, full circle here. Dumbledore had once told Harry that the day may come that he would be happy that he saved Wormtail's life. Because Wormtail's hesitation cost Wormtail his own life. He choked himself to death with the own hand that Voldemort gave him. That was pretty big. 
Uh, Grip Hook followed Harry's request and, li and lied to Bellatrix, telling her that the sword was a fake. Bellatrix has Hermione at knife point, threatens to kill her, but Dobby comes through and gets them out of there, but at a terrible price. And I did think on, on another side note here that was pretty cool is that Gellert Grindelwald was not afraid of Voldemort at all. On the contrary, he was laughing in Voldemort's face. Like, all right, man, yeah. I know what you're looking for, but you ain't going to get it. There's so much you don't understand. But no, the big obvious takeaway is that we lost someone who has been near and dear to us, especially to Harry and his story, even as early as Chamber of Secrets. You know, their relationship had come a long way. Dobby always, his heart has always been in the right place, but his actions were kind of all over, especially in Chamber of Secrets when he tried to block the barrier to Platform 9 three quarters. Then he tried to have the rogue bludger knock Harry out of Hogwarts so he would be safe from the opening of the Chamber of Secrets. But then, you know, as the series went on, he came to help him quite a bit. Like in the Goblet of Fire, he was the one who brought Harry a gillyweed to complete the second task. Uh, in mm -hmm. Order, Order of the Phoenix... You know, he had his little his moments there. Also, on Goblet Fire, my apologies. He also helped Winky, uh, kind of deal with the fact that Barty Crouch fired her, and and then from there we have into the to the Half Blood Prince. He shows up and uh, helps Creature track Malfoy for Harry. So he's always been giving Harry assistance and helping along the way. He's always been a great friend to him. Always cared about Harry, and Harry's the one who set him free. You know, and now we get this you know sad ending to a very sweet, you know, innocent creature. And that's kind of the theme of this whole war is that uh, these senseless murders, these people who don't have to die. And fortunately, Dobby is a casualty of this of this wizarding war, the second one, the second wizarding war. So with that, Malin, let's hear what takeaways you had from the chapter. Yeah, I, I think you hit pretty much all of them on the head. One thing I was going to say, though, like... Um, of course, you know, Dobby is such a powerful moment, but let's look on the on the big bads of the chapter. Uh, talk about, like, this, like, think of this. Like, we always talk, like, about how Bellatrix definitely shows, like, how powerful she is in this chapter. Like, all four of them, even Fenrir Greyback, which, remember, in Half-Blood Prince, even Dumbledore, like, he wasn't afraid of Fenrir. But he was even like, that's gross. And Finyar definitely, like, ripping throats and shit. Like, literally just a wave of her wand puts all of them to their knees. Like, shows exactly how powerful she is. Like, she's so underestimated, I think, as a witch. Uh, I don't think she's nearly on the level of Voldemort and Grindelwald, by all means. But at the same time, like, I think it's very underestimated. Like, Finyar Greyback, like, this werewolf that everyone feared... <laughs> along with his snatchers just a wave of her wand and puts them to the knees just because she can um another thing too i mean i wanted to bring up is you know just like you said i thought it was great you know he was pretty much laughing in voldemort's face i think it was a little bit more of like laughing like you came all this way and you're not going to get what you were looking for kind of thing um but at the same time we've talked about an in interesting facts uh you know, Geller Grindelwald, when we did the rankings of the fire spells, he was the one that conjured Protega Diabolica, which is ranked as the highest fire spell of all time, because not only can you control it, it also is conjured with dark magic, um, and you can make it uncontrollable. Um, but he was regarded as literally, it took uh six aurors including 
um, Newt Scamander himself just to temporarily stop his Protego Diabolical Fire Spell. So I think when you saw Voldemort, I, I think, I don't, he definitely, I agree with you 100%. I don't think he feared him at all. At the same time, I think he was more laughing because, like, you came all this way for nothing. But I think it's also like, wow, like, you know, this guy has to have some respect. Um, but other than that, I, I did want to say, I, I think the whole albino peacock, I thought that was kind of like a cool moment there. Um, but yeah, it's just a really uh, powerful moment. Of course, Ron like almost blows everything again, like won't shut up. Like no one can ever make a plan. I feel like no one can ever make a proper plan unless Hermione's there. Like, I feel like, <laughs> come on, Harry. Like, I would think you would stand on your own two feet at some point and actually think things through. But no, of course, he reacted out of emotion again and just had Dobby take Ollivander and uh, Dean Thomas and Luna right away. Like, you never thought maybe they could try to help <laughs> or something. Like, I mean, maybe think things through a little bit. Like, I, you know, but um, yeah, it's just a really powerful moment and on you know he's definitely uh left his mark on the harry potter franchise i would say so anything else you want to say before i start this chapter and then i'll turn it over to you to close this out yeah just just a, just a few things like not so much as takeaways but just you know kind of anecdotes i'll, I'll say is that like i don't know if it would have been a great idea to try to have dean and luna and olivander help because they didn't have any wands and that's a lot of bodies where like yeah. Lucius, Narcissa, Bellatrix, they could have caught one of them and held him hostage like they did to Hermione, you know, before Dobby went and True. got him. So I think them getting out of there was a good thing. But the thing is, is I feel like what I would have told Dobby to do is, like, get Hermione out of there first and then, like, you know, come back down with everybody yeah. else just because, like, she was there being tortured. And on top of that, like, he always, like, they almost get caught at the very end. Like, Voldemort gets very close to catching them at the Malfoy White Manor. And that's why I said earlier that, like, he always plays this hero type role. He gets everyone else out, and that's nice and stuff. But when doing that, it allowed them the extra minutes where they were very, very close to being caught by Voldemort. When Voldemort's there, it's all over. And on top of that, that hesitation, like when they would get find Dobby finally comes up there, drops a chandelier, grabs you know Hermione out of the way, and he grabs Griphook, and they finally do go. It's like to me, uh, if he went, if if Dobby came back. And like he gave him clear instructions: take Duna, take Dean, Luna, and Ollivander, go. Come back, take Ron and I, go. Go back and get Hermione by yourself. Boom! I think you're good. I think you're good. I think you got it right there. But because they put themselves into trouble by trying to battle it through and save Hermione themselves, like that's what got Dobby killed. Because Dobby could have went there quickly. Boom, boom, done. There was no like sitting around all waiting. Like Bellatrix wouldn't have time to throw a knife at him. Like it just there was just better ways yeah. to go about it. But as you said, he not. He rarely thinks through his decisions before he acts, and you know I think uh, Dobby's life could have easily been—I wouldn't say saved because he wasn't in danger until Harry put it in danger. I would say <laughs> spared. There we go. His life could have been spared with just some critical thinking in, in pressure situations. Yeah. So yes, that is all I had to say regarding the remainder there of, of chapter twenty-three. I'll let you go ahead and take the first few pages here of chapter twenty-four, our last chapter that we'll get into today, and then. Once we get to that, that certain point, I'll take over from there and close this out. Awesome. Uh, so at this point, I'm actually going to read just until it's on page. It's not too far into this chapter here. 
it's going to be until, sorry, I just had it there, uh, right towards the bottom of 481. I'm going to let yep. you take over from there and then close us out, man. Yep. Um, so this is uh, chapter 24, The Wand Maker. It was like sinking into an old nightmare. For an instant, Harry felt, Harry knelt again beside Dumbledore's body at the foot of the tallest tower at Hogwarts. But in reality, he was staring at a tiny body curled upon the grass. Pierced by Bellatrix's silver knife, Harry's voice was still saying, Dobby, Dobby. Even though he knew that the elf had gone where he could not come back, he could not call him back. After a minute or so, he realized that he had, after all, come to the right place for here where were Bill and Floor, Dean and Luna gathering around him as he knelt over the elf. Hermione, he said suddenly. Where is she? Ron's taking her inside, said Bill. She'll be all right. Harry looked about, looked back down at Dobby. He stretched out a hand and pulled the sharp blade from the elf's body, then dragged off his own jacket and covered Dobby in a, like a blanket, in it like a blanket. The sea was rushing against the rock somewhere nearby. Harry listened to it while the others talked, discussing matters in which he could take no interest making decisions. Dean carried the injured Griffhook into the house. Floor hurrying with them, now Bill was making suggestions about burying the elf. Harry agreed without really knowing what he was saying. As he did so, he gazed down at the tiny body and his scarf prickled and burned. And in one part of his own mind, his mind viewed as it from the wrong end of the long telescope, he saw Voldemort punishing those they had left behind at Malfoy Manor. He ra his rage was dreadful, and yet Harry's grief for Dobby seemed to diminish it, so that it became a distant storm that reached Harry from across the vast, silent ocean. I want to do it properly, were the first words of which Harry was fully conscious of speaking. Not by magic. Have you got a spade? And shortly afterward, he had set to work, alone digging the grave in the place that Bill had shown him at the end of the garden, between the bushes. He dug with a kind of fury, relishing, relishing the manual work, glorying in the non-magic of it, for every drop of his sweat and every blister felt like a gift to the elf who had saved their lives. His scar burned, but he was master of the plan. He felt it, yet was apart from it. He had learned control at last, learned to shut his mind to Voldemort, the very thing Dumbledore had wanted him to learn from Snape. Just as Voldemort had not been able to possess Harry, while Harry was consumed with grief from Sirius, so his thoughts could not penetrate how now, while he mourned Dobby, grief, it seemed, drove Voldemort out. Though Dumbledore, of course, would have said that it was love. On Harry dug deeper and deeper into the hard, cold earth, subsuming his grief and sweat, denying the pain in his scar and the darkness with nothing but the sound of his own breath and the rushing sea to keep him company, the things that had happened at Malfoy's returned to him. The things he had heard came back to him, and understanding the blossomed in the darkness. The steady rhythm of his arms beat time with his thoughts, hallows, horcruxes, hallows, horcruxes. Yet he no longer burned with the weird, obsessive longing. Loss and fear had snuffed it out. He felt as though he had been slapped awake again, Deeper and deeper, Harry sank into the grave, and he knew where Voldemort had been tonight, and whom he had killed in the topmost cell of Nurmengard, and why. And he thought of Wormtail dead because of one small unconscious impulse of mercy, 
Dumbledore had foreseen that. How much more had he known? Harry lost track of time. He knew that only darkness had lighted in a few degrees when he was rejoined by Ron and Dean. How's Hermione? Better, said Ron. Floor's looking after her. Harry had his retort ready for when they asked why he had not simply created a perfect grave with his wand, but he did not need it. They jumped down into the hole and he had made with spades of their own, and together they worked in silence until the hole seemed deep enough. Harry wrapped the elf more snugly in his jacket. Ron sat on the edge of the grave and stripped off his shoes and socks, which he placed upon the elf's bare feet. Dean produced a woolen hat, which Harry placed carefully upon Dobby's head, muffling his bat-like ears. We should close his eyes. Harry had not heard the others coming through the darkness. Bill was wearing a traveling cloak, floor and a large white apron from the pocket of which protruded a bottle of what Harry recognized to be Skelligro. Hermione was wrapped in a borrowed dressing gown, pale and unsteady on her feet. Ron put an arm around her. When she reached him, Luna, who was huddled in one of Floor's coats, crouched down and placed her fingers tenderly upon each of the elves' eyelids, sliding them over his glassy stare. There, she said softly. Now he could be sleeping. Harry placed the elf into the grave, arranged his tiny limbs so that he might have been resting, then climbed out and gazed for the last time upon the little body. He forced himself not to break down as he remembered Dumbledore's funeral and the rows and rows of golden chairs and the Minister of Magic in the front row, the recitation of Dumbledore's achievements and the stateless, stateliness of the white marble tomb. He felt that Dobby deserved just as grand a funeral, and yet, here the elf lay between the bushes in a roughly dug hole. I think we ought to say something, piped up Luna. I'll go first, shall I? And as everybody looked at her, she addressed the dead elf at the bottom of the grave. Thank you so much, Dobby, for rescuing me from the cellar. It's so unfair that you had to die when you were so good and brave. I'll always remember what you did for us. I hope you're happy now. She turned and looked expectedly at Ron, who cleared his throat and said in a thick voice, Yeah. Thanks, Dobby. Thanks muttered Dean. Harry swallowed. Goodbye, Dobby, he said. It was all he could manage, but Luna had said it all for him. Bill raised his wand, and a pile of earth beside the graves rose into the air and fell neatly upon it, a small reddish mound. Do you mind if I stay here a moment? He asked the others. They murdered words, murmured words he did not catch. He felt gentle pats upon his back, and then they all traced back toward the cottage, leaving Harry alone beside the elf. He looked around. There were a number of large white stones smoothed by the sea, marking the edge of the flower beds. He picked up one of the largest and laid it pillow-like over the place where Dobby's head now rested. He then felt in his pocket for a wand. There were two in there. He had forgotten, lost track. He could not now remember whose wands these were. He seemed to remember wrenching them out of someone's hand. He selected the shorter of the two, which felt friendlier in his hand, and pointed it at the rock. Slowly, under his murmured instruction, deep cuts appeared upon the rock's surface. He knew that Hermione could have done it more neatly and probably more quickly, but he wanted to mark the spot as he had wanted to dig the grave. When Harry stood up again, the stone read, Here lies Dobby. 
a free L. And with that, man, I'm going to turn it on over to you on page 481 at the bottom. Sounds like a plan. I do want to just tackle some bullet points, too, from that. Like, I know you had already read it, but just some things to highlight quickly is just... I thought it was yeah. cool that Dobby's last act was to save Harry and he got them safely to the right place at Villain Fleurs. It's just kind of, you know, what Dobby has done the whole time. Looked out for Harry in his own little mm-hmm. weird ways, right? Uh, yeah. On page 478, Voldemort was punishing those back at Malfoy Manor for letting Harry escape once again, so... We're going to see how that turns out. Harry insists on burying Dobby the property with Manuel Ledbur and digs a grave for him by hand. And that's actually going to be something that comes up here that I'm going to take for the rest of the chapter because someone else noticed that mm-hmm. Harry did that. And because he did that, I think it yeah. allows that someone to trust him a little bit. And then, uh, yeah, he, how he was able to shut his mind of Voldemort. He said, you know, the grief is what really kind of triggers it when he was, you know, mad with grief when Sirius died in the Ministry of Magic and he tried to possess him. He couldn't. And so the same now, you know, like the, all of those crazy emotions that Voldemort was fearing of anger and, you know, torturing his you know, Death Eaters, Harry could block it out. And it was, it's pretty cool that he had right. control over that at that point. And then, um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think, I think it's good to take a moment here to put our wands up for Dobby just because, uh, yeah. he, this is, this is the end of the road for him. This is his last little hurrah. He got the burial. Harry did what he could with what he had with him and. Dobby's not with us anymore, but he's not forgotten. So wands up for Dobby. Quick moment of silence, and we'll move on. To the free elf. Perfect. All right. I'm going to go ahead and take it from page 482 all the way through the end of the chapter. Um, This is is coming from the uh, perspective of Bill. He's talking to everybody else uh, regarding the Weasley family. I've been getting them all out of the burrow, he explained. Move them to Muriel's. The Death Eaters know Ron's with you now. They're bound to target the family. Don't apologize, he added at the sight of Harry's expression. It was always a matter of time. Dad's been saying so for months. We're the biggest blood traitor family there is. How are they protected, asked Harry. The Fidelius charm. Dad's secret keeper. And we've done it at this cottage, too. I'm secret keeper here. None of us can go to work, but that's hardly the most important thing now. Once Ollivander and Griphook are well enough, we'll move them to Muriel's, too. There isn't much room here, but she's got plenty. Griphook's legs are on the men. Fleur's given him Skelligrow. We could probably move him in an hour or... No, Harry said, and Bill looked startled. I need both of them here. I need to talk to them. It's important. Hear the authority in his own voice, the conviction, the sense of purpose that had come to him as he dug Dobby's grave. All their faces turned towards him, looking puzzled. I'm going to wash, Harry toward Bill, looking at down at his hands, still covered in mud and Dobby's blood. Then I'll need to see them straight away. He walked into the little kitchen to the basin beneath the window, like overlooking the sea. Dawn was breaking over the horizon, shell pink and faintly gold as he washed again, following the train of thought that had come to him in the dark garden. Dobby would never be able to tell them who had sent him to the cellar, but Harry knew what he had seen. A piercing blue eye had looked out of the mirror fragment, and then had come. help had come. Help will always be given at Hogwarts to those who ask for it. Harry dried his hands, impervious to the beauty of the scene outside the window, and to the murmuring of the others in the sitting room. He looked out over the ocean and felt closer, this dawn, than ever before, closer to the heart of it all. And his scar still prickled, and he knew that Voldemort was getting there, too. Harry understood, and yet did not understand. His instinct was telling him one thing, his brain quite another. The Dumbledore in Harry's head smiled, surveying Harry over the tips of his fingers, pressed together as if in prayer. You gave Ron the Deluminator. You understood him. You gave him a way back. And you understood Wormtail, too. You knew there was a bit of regret there, somewhere. And if you knew them, what did you know about me, Dumbledore? Am I meant to know 
but not to seek? Did you know how hard I'd find that? Is that why you made it this difficult, so I'd have time to work that out? Harry stood still, eyes glazed, watching the place where the bright gold rim of dazzling sun was rising over the horizon. He looked down at his clean hands and was momentarily surprised to see the cloth he was still holding in them. He set it down and returned to the hall, and as he did so, he felt his scar pulse angrily, and there flashed across his mind, swift as a reflection of a dragonfly over the water, the outline of a building he knew extremely well. Bill and Fleur were standing at the foot of the stairs. I need to speak to Griphook and Ollivander, Harry said. No, said Fleur. You will have to wait, Harry. They are both ill and tired. I'm sorry, he said without heat, but it cannot wait. I need to talk to them now, privately and separately. It's urgent. Harry, what the hell is going on? asked Bill. You turn up here with a dead house elf and a half-conscious goblin. Hermione looks as though she'd been tortured, and Ron's just refused to tell me anything. We can't tell you what we're doing, said Harry Fowley. You're in the order, Bill. You know Dumbledore left us a mission. We're not supposed to talk about it to anyone else. Fleur made an impatient noise, but Bill did not look at her. He was staring at Harry. His deeply scarred face was hard to read. Finally, Bill said, All right, who do you want to talk to first? Harry hesitated. He knew what hung on this decision. There was hardly any time left. Now was the moment to decide. Horcruxes or Hallows? Griphook, Harry said. I'll speak to Griphook first. His heart was racing as though he had been sprinting and he had just cleared an enormous obstacle. Up here, then, said Bill, leading the way. Harry walked up several steps before stopping, looking back. I need you two as well, he called Ron and Hermione, who had been skulking, half-concealed in the doorway of the sitting room. They both moved into the light, looking oddly relieved. How are you? Harry asked Hermione. You were amazing, coming up with a story like that when she was hurting you. Hermione gave a weak smile as Ron gave her a one-armed squeeze. What are we doing now, Harry? he asked. You'll see. Come on. Harry, Ron, and Hermione followed Bill up the stairs into the small landing. Three doors led off it. In here, said Bill, opening the door into his and Fleur's room. It too had a view of the sea, now flecked with gold in a sunrise. Harry moved to the window, turned his back on the spectacular view and waited, arms folded and scar prickling. Hermione took the chair beside the dressing table. Ron sat on the arm. Bill reappeared, carrying the little goblin, whom he set down carefully upon the bed. Grippo grunted thanks and Bill left, closing the door upon them all. I'm sorry to take you out of your bed, said Harry. How are you? How are your legs? Painful, replied the goblin, but mending. He was still clutching the sword of Gryffindor and wore a strange look, half translucent, half intrigued. Harry noted the goblin's sallow skin, his long thin fingers, his black eyes. Fleur had removed his shoes, his long feet were dirty. He was, as lar he was larger than a house elf, but not by much. His domed head was much bigger than a human's. You probably don't remember, Harry began, that I was a goblin who showed you to your vault the first time you ever visited Gringotts, said Griphook. I remember, Harry Potter. Even amongst goblins, you are very famous. Harry and the goblin looked at each other, sizing each other up. Harry's scar was still prickling. He wanted to get through this interview with Grippa quickly, at the same time was afraid of making a false move. While he tried to decide on the best way to approach his request, the goblin broke the silence. You buried the elf, he said, sounding unexpectedly rancorous. Yes, I watched you from the window of the bedroom next door. Grippa looked at him out of the corners of his slanting black eyes. You are unusual, Harry Potter. In what way? asked Harry, rubbing his scar absently. You dug the grave. So? Griphook did not answer. Harry Ray thought he was being sneered at for acting like a muggle, but it did not matter to him much whether Griphook approved of Dobby's grave or not. He gathered himself for the attack. Griphook, I need to ask, you also rescued a goblin. What? You brought me here. Saved me. Well, I take it you're not sorry, said Harry a little impatiently. No, Harry Potter, said Griphook, and with one finger he twisted the thin black beard upon his chin. But you are a very odd wizard. Right, said Harry. Well, I need some help, Griphook, and you can give it to me. 
The goblin made no sign of encouragement, but continued to frown at Harry as though he had never seen anything like him. I need to break into a Gringotts vault. Harry had not meant to say it so baldly. The words were forced from him as pain shot through his lightning scar, and he saw again the outline of Hogwarts. He closed his mind firmly. He needed to deal with Griphook first. Ron and Hermione were staring at Harry as though he had gone mad. Harry, said Hermione, but she was cut off by Griphook. Break into a Gringotts vault? Repeated the goblin, wincing a little as he shifted his position in the bed. It isn't possible. No, it isn't, Ron contradicted him. It's been done. Yeah, said Harry, the same day I first met you, Griphook, my birthday, seven years ago. The vault in question was empty at the time, snapped the goblin, and Harry understood that even though Griphook had left Gringotts, he was offended at the idea of its defenses being breached. Its protection was minimal. Well, the vault we need to get into isn't empty, and I'm guessing its protection will be pretty powerful, said Harry. It belongs to the Lestranges. Harry saw Hermione and Ron look at each other astonished, but there would be time enough to explain after Griphook had given his answer. You have no chance, said Griphook flatly. No chance at all. If you seek, beneath our floors, a treasure that was never yours, thief, you have been warned, beware. Yeah, I know. I remember, said Harry. But I'm not trying to get myself any treasure. I'm not trying to take anything for personal gain. Can you believe that? The goblin looked slantwise at Harry, and the lightning scar on Harry's forehead prickled, but he ignored it, refusing to acknowledge his pain or its invitation. If there was a wizard of whom I would believe that they did not seek personal gain, said Griphook finally, it would be you, Harry Potter. Goblins and elves are not used to the protection or the respect that you have shown this night. Not from wand carriers. Wand carriers, repeated Harry. This phrase fell oddly upon his ears as his scar prickled, as Voldemort turned his thoughts northward and as Harry burned to question Ollivander next door. The right to carry a wand, said the goblin quietly, has long been contested between wizards and goblins. Well, goblins can do magic without wand, wand said Ron. That is immaterial. Wizards refuse to share the secrets of wand lore with other magical beings. They deny us the possibility of extending our powers. Well, goblins won't share any of their magic either, said Ron. You won't tell us how to make swords and armor the way you do. Goblins know how to work metal in the way wizards have never... It doesn't matter, said Harry, noting Griphook's rising color. This isn't about wizards versus goblins or any other sort of magical creature. Griphook gave a nasty laugh, but it is. It is about precisely that. As the Dark Lord becomes even more powerful, your race is still set more firmly above mine. Gringotts falls under wizarding rule. House elves are slaughtered, and who amongst the wrong carriers protests? We do, said Hermione. She had sat up straight, her eyes bright. We protest. And I'm hunted quite as much as any goblin or elf, elf Griphook. I'm a mudblood. Don't call yourself Ron Mudder. Why shouldn't I, said Hermione. Mudblood and proud of it. I've got no higher position under this new order than you have, Griphook. It was me they chose to torture back at the Malfoys. As she spoke, she pulled aside the neck of the dressing gown to reveal the thin cut Bellatrix had made scarlet against her throat. Did you know that it was Harry who set Dobby free, she asked. Did you know that we've wanted, to, wanted elves, elves to be freed for years? Ron fidgeted uncomfortably on the arm of Hermione's chair. You can't want you know who defeated more than we do, Griphook. The goblin gazed at Hermione with the same curiosity he had shown Harry. What do you seek within the Lestrange's vault, he asked abruptly. The sword that lies inside it is a fake. This is the real one, he looked from one to the other. I think that you already knew this. You asked me to lie for you back there. But the fake sword isn't the only thing in that vault, is it? asked Harry. Perhaps you've seen other things in there. His heart was pounding harder than ever. He redoubled his efforts to ignore the pulsing of his scar. The goblin twisted his beard around his finger again. It is against our code to speak of secrets of Gringotts. 
We are the guardians of fabulous treasures. We have a duty to the objects placed in our care, which were so often wrought by your fingers. The goblin stroked his sword, and his black eyes roved from Harry to Hermione, to Ron, and then back again. So young, he said finally, to be fighting so many. Will you help us, said Harry? We haven't got a hope of breaking in without goblin's help. You're our one chance. I shall think about it, said Gripup maddeningly. But Ron started angrily. Hermione nudged him in the ribs. Thank you, said Harry. The goblin bowed his great domed head in acknowledgement, then flexed his short legs. I think, he said, settling himself ostentatiously upon Bill and Fleur's bed, that the Skelligro has finished its work. I may be able to sleep at last. Forgive me. Yeah, of course, said Harry, but before leaving the room, he leaned forward and took the sword of Gryffindor from beside the goblin. Griphook did not protest, but Harry thought he saw resentment in the goblin's eyes as he closed the door upon him. Little git, whispered Ron. He's enjoying keeping us hanging. Harry, whispered Hermione, pulling them both away from the door into the middle of the still dark landing. Are you saying what I think you're saying? Are you saying that there's a horcrux in the Lestrange's vault? Yes, said Harry. Bellatrix was terrified when she thought we had been in there. She was beside herself. Why? What did she think we had seen? What else did she think we might have taken? Something she was petrified you know who would find out about. But I thought we were looking for places you know who's been. Places he's done something important, said Ron, looking baffled. Was he ever inside the Lestrange's vault? I don't know whether he was ever inside Gringotts, said Harry. He never had gold there when he was younger because nobody had left him anything. He would have seen the bank from the outside the first time he ever went to Diagon Alley. Harry scarred throbbed, but he ignored it. He wanted Ron and Hermione to understand about Gringotts before he spoke to Alavander. I think he would have envied anyone who had a key to Gringotts' vault. I think he'd have seen it as a real symbol of belonging to the wizarding world. And don't forget, he trusted Bellatrix and her husband. They were his most devoted servants before he fell, and they went looking for him after he vanished. He said it the night he came back. I heard him. Harry rubbed the scar. I don't think he had told Bellatrix it was a horcrux, though. He never told Lucius the truth about the, the diary. He probably told her it was a treasured possession and asked her to place it in her vault. The safest place in the world for anything you want to hide, Hagrid told me, except for Hogwarts. And when Harry finished speaking, Ron shook his head. You really understand him. Bits of him, said Harry. Bits. I just wish I'd understood Dumbledore as much, but we'll see. Come on, Ollivander. Oh, so come on, Ollivander now. Ron and Hermione looked bewildered but impressed as they followed him across the little landing and knocked upon the door opposite Bill and Fleur's. A weak, come in, answered them. The wandmaker was lying on the twin bed farthest from the window. He had been held in the cellar for more than a year and been tortured, Harry knew, at least on one occasion. He was emaciated, the bones of his face sticking out sharply against the yellowish skin. His great silver eyes seemed, to, seemed vast in their sunken sockets. The hands that lay upon the blanket could have belonged to a skeleton. Harry sat down on the empty bed beside Ron and Hermione, the rising sun was not visible here. The room faced a cliff-top garden and the freshly dug grave. Mr. Ollivander, I'm sorry to disturb you, said Harry. My dear boy, Ollivander's voice is feeble. You rescued us. I thought I would die in that place. I can never thank you. Never thank you enough. We were glad to do it. Harry's scar throbbed. He knew he was certain that there was hardly any time left in which to beat Voldemort to his goal or else attempt to thwart him. He felt a flutter of panic, yet he had made his decision when he chose to speak to Griphook first. Feigning a calm he did not feel, he groped in his pouch around his neck and took out the two halves of his broken wand. Mr. Ollivander, I need some help. Anything, anything, said the wandmaker weakly. Can you mend this? Is it possible? Ollivander held out a trembling hand and Harry placed the two barely connected halves into his palm. Holly and Phoenix feathers, said Ollivander in a tremulous voice, eleven inches, nice and supple. 
Yes, said Harry. Can you? No, whispered Ollivander. I am sorry. Very sorry. But a wand that has suffered this degree of damage cannot be repaired by any means that I know of. Harry had been braced to hear it, but it was a blow nevertheless. He took the wand halves back and replaced them in the pouch around his neck. Ollivander stared at the place where the shattered wand had vanished, and he did not look away until Harry had taken from his pocket the two wands he had brought from the Malfoys. Can you identify these? Harry asked. The wandmaker took the first of the wands and held it close to his faded eyes, rolling it between his knobble-knuckled fingers, flexing it slightly. Walnut and dragon heartstring, he said, twelve and three-quarter inches, unyielding. This wand belonged to Bellatrix Lestrange. And this one? Ollivander performed the same examination. Hawthorn and unicorn hair, ten inches precisely, reasonably springy. This was the wand of Draco Malfoy. Was, repeated Harry. Isn't it still his? Perhaps not, if you took it. I did. Then it may be yours. Of course, the manner of taking matters. Much also depends upon the wand itself. In general, however, where a wand has been won, its allegiance will change. There was a silence in the room except for the distant rushing of the sea. You talk about wands like they've got feelings, said Harry, like they can think for themselves. The wand chooses the wizard, said Ollivander. That much has always been clear to us, us who have studied wand lore. A person can still use a wand that hasn't chosen them, though, asked Harry. Oh yes, if you are any wizard at all, you will be able to channel your magic through almost any instrument. The best results, however, must always come where there is a strong affinity between the wizard and his wand. These connections are complex, an initial attraction and then a mutual quest for experience, the wand learning from the wizard, the wizard from the wand. The sea gushed forward and backwards. It was a mournful sound. I took this wand from Draco Malfoy by force, said Harry. Can I use it safely? I think so. Subtle laws govern wand ownership, but the conquered wand will usually bend its will to this new master. So I should use this one, said Ron, pulling Wormtail's wand out of his pocket and handing it to Ollivander. Chestnut and dragon heartstring, nine and a quarter inches. Brittle. I was forced to make this shortly after my kidnapping for Peter Pettigrew. Yes, if you want it, it is more likely to do your bidding and do it well than another wand. And this holds true for all wands, does it? Yes, I think so, replied Ollivander, his protuberant eyes upon Harry's face. You ask deep questions, Mr. Potter. Wand lore is a complex and mysterious branch of magic. So it isn't necessary to kill the previous owner to take true possession of a wand? Asked Harry. Ollivander swallowed. Necessary? No, I should say not. It is not necessary to kill. These are le There are legends, though, said Harry, and his heart rate quickened. The pain in the scar became more intense. He was sure that Voldemort had decided to put his idea into action. Legends about wands, or a wand, that have passed from hand to hand by murder. Ollivander turned pale against a snowy pillow. He was light gray, and his eyes were enormous bloodshot and bulging with what looked like fear. Only one wand, I think, he whispered. And you know who is interested in it, isn't he? Asked Harry. I, how? croaked Ollivander, and he looked appealingly at Ron and Hermione for help. How do you know this? He wanted you to tell them how to overcome the connection between our wands, said Harry. Ollivander looked terrified. He tortured me. You must understand that. The Crucianus curse. I, I had no choice but to tell him what I knew, what I guessed. I understand, said Harry. You told him about the twin cores. You said he had just had to borrow another wizard's wand. Ollivander looked horrified, transfixed by the amount that Harry knew. He nodded slowly. But it didn't work, Harry went on. Mine still beat the borrowed wand. Do you know why that is? Ollivander shook his head as, slow as he, slowly as he had just nodded. I had never heard of such a thing. Your wand performed something unique that night. The connection of the twin cores is incredibly rare, yet why your wand should have snapped the borrower's wand, I do not know.
We were talking about the other wand, the wand that changes hands by murder. When you know who realized my wand does something strange, he came back and asked about the other wand, didn't he? How do you know this? Harry did not answer. Yes, whispered Ollivander. He wanted to know everything I could tell him about the wand variously known as the death stick, the wand of destiny, or the elder wand. Harry glanced sideways at Hermione. She looked flabbergasted. The Dark Lord, said Ollivander in hushed and frightened tones, had always been happy with the wand I had made him. You and Phoenix Feather, thirteen and a half inches, until he discovered the connection of the twin cores. Now he seeks another more powerful wand as the only way to conquer yours. But he'll, he'll know soon, if he doesn't already, that mine's broken beyond repair, said Harry quietly. No, said Hermione, sounding frightened. He can't know that, Harry. How could he? Priori and Cantatum, said Harry. We left your wand and the Blackthorn at the Malfoys. If they examine them properly, make them recreate the spells they've cast lately, they'll see that yours broke mine. They'll see that you tried and failed to mend it, and they'll realize I've been using the Blackthorn one ever since. The little color she had regained since their arrival had drained from her face. Ron gave Harry a reproachful look and said, Let's not worry about that now. But Mr. Ollivander intervened. The Dark Lord no longer seeks the Elder Wand only for your destruction, Mr. Potter. He is determined to possess it because he believes it will make him truly invulnerable. And will it? The owner of the Elder Wand must always fear attack, said Ollivander. But the idea of the Dark Lord in possession of the Death Stick, I must admit, is formidable. Harry was suddenly reminded of how he had been unsure when he first met Ollivander of how much he liked him. Even now, having been tortured and imprisoned by Voldemort, the idea of the Dark Wizard in possession of this wand seemed to enthrall him as much as it repulsed him. You really think this wand exists, Mr. Ollivander? asked Hermione. Oh yes, it is perfectly possible to trace the wand's course through history. There are gaps, of course, and long ones where it vanishes from view, temporarily lost or hidden, but it always resurfaces. It has certain identifying characteristics that those who are learned in wand lore recognize. There are written accounts, some of them obscure, that I and other wand makers have made it strictly our business to study. They have the ring of authenticity. So you you don't think it can be a fairy tale or a myth? Hermione asked hopefully. No, said Ollivander. Whether it needs to pass by murder, I do not know. Its history is bloody, but that may be simply due to the fact that it's such a desirable object and arouses such passions in wizards. Immensely powerful, dangerous in the wrong hands, and an object of an incredible fascination to all of us who study the power of wands. Mr. Ollivander, said Harry, you told you know who that Grigorovich had the elder wand, didn't you? Ollivander turned, if possible, even paler. He looked as ghostly as he he looked ghostly as he gulped. But how how do you know never mind how I know it, said Harry, closing his eyes momentarily as a scar burned, and he saw, for mere seconds, a vision of the main street of Hogsmeade, still dark, because it was so much farther north. You told you-know-who that Grigorich had the wand. It was a rumor, whispered Ollivander, a rumor years and years ago, long before you were born. I believe Grigorovich himself started it. You can see how good it would have been for business that he was studying and duplicating the qualities of the Elder Wand. Yes, I can see that, said Harry. He stood up. Mr. Ollivander, one last thing, and then we'll let you get some rest. What do you know about the Deathly Hallows? The, the what? Asked the wand maker, looking utterly bewildered. The Deathly Hallows. I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. Is this still something to do with wands? Harry looked into the sunken face and believed that Ollivander was not acting. He did not know about the Hallows. Thank you, said Harry. Thank you very much. We'll leave to get some rest now. Ollivander looked stricken. He was torturing me, he gasped. The Cruciatus Christ, you have no idea. I do, said Harry. I really do. Please get some rest. Thank you for telling me all of this. 
He led Ron and Hermione down the staircase. Harry caught a glimpse of Bill, Fleur, Luna, and Dean sitting at the table in the kitchen, cups of tea in front of them. They all looked up at Harry as he appeared in the door, but he merely nodded to them and continued into the garden. Ron and Hermione behind him. The reddish amount of dirt that covered Dobby lay ahead, and Harry walked back to it as the pain in his head built more and more powerfully. It was a huge effort now to close down the visions that were forcing themselves upon him, but he knew that he would have to resist only a little longer. He would yield very soon because he needed to know that his theory was right, but he must make only one more short effort so that he could explain everything to Ron and Hermione. Grigorovich had the Elder Wand a long time ago, he said. I saw you know who trying to find him. When he tracked him down, he found that Grigorovich didn't have it anymore. It was stolen from him by Grindelwald. How Grindelwald found out that Grigorovich had it, I don't know. But if Grigorovich was stupid enough to spread the rumor, it, it can't have been that difficult. Voldemort was at the gates of Hogwarts. Harry could see him standing there and see, too, the lamp bobbing and the pre-dawn coming closer and closer. And Grindelwald uses the Elder Wand to become powerful, and at the height of his power, when Dumbledore knew he was the only one that could stop him, he dueled Grindelwald, beat him, and took the Elder Wand. Dumbledore had the Elder Wand, said Ron, but then where is it now? At Hogwarts, said Harry, fighting to remain with them in the clifftop garden. But then let's go, said Ron urgently. Harry, let's go and get it before he does. It's too late for that, said Harry. He could not help himself but clutched his head, trying to help it resist. He knows where it is. He's there now. Harry, Ron said furiously, how long have you known this? Why have we been wasting time? Why did you talk to Grippa first? We could have gone. We can still go. No, said Harry, and he sank to his knees in the grass. Hermione's right. Dumbledore didn't want me to have it. He didn't want me to take it. He wanted me to get the Horcruxes. The unbeatable wand, Harry, moaned Ron. I'm not supposed to. I'm supposed to get the Horcruxes. And now everything was cool and dark. The sun was barely visible to the horizon as he glided alongside Snape up through the grounds towards the lake. I shall join you in the castle shortly, he said in his high, cold voice. Leave me now. Snape bowed himself back up the path and his black coat billowed behind him. Harry walked slowly, waiting for Snape's figure to disappear. It would not do for Snape, or indeed anyone else, to see where he was going. But there were no lights in the castle windows, and he could con conceal himself, and in a second... He had cast upon himself a disillusionment charm that had hit him even from his own eyes. And he walked on, around the edge of the lake, taking in the outlines of the beloved castle, his first kingdom, his birthright. And here it was, beside the lake, reflected in the dark waters, the white marble tomb, an unnecessary blot on the familiar landscape. He felt again the rush of controlled euphoria, that heady sense of purpose and destruction. He raised his old wand, and how fitting that this would be its last great act. The tomb split open from head to foot. The shrouded figure was long and thin as it had been in life. He raised the wand again. The wrappings fell open. The face was translucent, pale, sunken, yet almost perfectly preserved. They had left his spectacles on the crooked nose. He felt amused derision. Dumbledore's hands were folded upon his chest, and there it lay, clutched beneath them, buried with him. Had the old fool imagined that the marble or death would protect the wand? Had he thought that the Dark Lord would be scared to violate his tomb? The spider-like hand swooped down and pulled the wand from Dumbledore's grasp, and as he took it, a shower of sparks flew from its tip, sparkling over the corpse of its last owner, ready to serve a new master at last. And that's where we're going to end what we're going to talk about today. That was the end of chapter 24, so... There was a lot of big things going in that moment. We've had a, a major decision that had to be made and just a lot of things 
to really talk about. So Chase, go ahead and give us some of your takeaways on that chapter and I'll do the same and then we'll move it on along to other sections of this episode. Yeah, a, a lot of stuff from that chapter. I think we hit uh, hit the nail on the head about Dobby already, so I won't go over that. But going from past that, so uh, I think a big part is, you know, when Harry knew what he had seen, that piercing blue eye in the mirror fragment. Like, that that's a big part, which is on page 483 in the middle. Um, then, of course, with Griphook, that tells Harry that... Uh, the goblin he was the first one that showed Harry the vault so that's a big full circle moment from Sorcerer's Stone uh, at the bank of the first time and um, he keeps calling him an unusual wizard which this really points out the fact in this chapter that there's a lot of adversity that goes on between goblins and wizards and all these different races which even kind of plays back into the whole elf thing uh, there um, and then from this point here, you know, I think a big standout moment is on page 487 when Harry tells him he needs to break into Gringotts because what's in the Lestrange's vault, which is a big foreshadowing moment there. And of course, you know, Griphook that worked for Gringotts for so long is like it's impossible. Um, so you can see this is a very major task uh, that they're about to take at hand. And he was even saying, you know, there's no chance. Um, and then from here, uh, I have this, a big impact moment is um, where Griphook was, you know, basically going back and forth on how wizards don't let goblins use wands. So I thought that was a really big, big moment there. Um, and then, you know, and then Hermione really stands up and it's kind of a full circle moment for her, just like how she was sticking up for the elves with spew for all that time. And she even goes, you know, I'm the mud blood and proud of it. And uh, this kind of makes Grip Hook think uh, for a moment. It kind of puts him in his place for just a second there. Um, but then, of course, uh, from that point, the next one I have is Harry showed Ollivander uh, Draco's wand. And... Um, then Ollivander said, you know, when a wand is one, its allegiance will change. So that's a big moment because we didn't know that really was confirmed yet. Uh, and then from that moment, the next one I have is um, that Ollivander even said in the same page, you know, you can channel your magic through any instrument, which was really uh, surprising to me, which is really cool. And, you know, we've talked about elves and stuff before, how they don't even use wands and you know the elite didn't even have to use wands so that's a big moment there um olivander uh then tells ron you know he should use wormtail's wand so that's a big moment and remember wormtail died in the last chapter um so that's kind of a full circle moment i guess for ron um and then harry mentions um that remember when he beat uh he talks about that moment with sluin's uh wand with voldemort um, and when all that happened, uh, and then he mentions that, you know, he has that question that from Ron has that question, Dumbledore has the Elder Wand, and they realize that Dumbledore is the one all this time that had the Elder Wand, and we were wondering where it was, and that he won it from beating Grindelwald in that big match there. Um, and then, you know, Harry's having those visions, uh, and they realize this is really that confirmed moment 
where they realize what Voldemort is after this whole time. And he's having these visions of Voldemort at Hogwarts trying to get the wand. And they're like, well, why don't we go get it? You know, and Harry says, you know, he realizes all the time, you know, Dumbledore never wanted me to get that wand. Like he knew it was probably going to come down to this. And, you know, Hallows versus Horcruxes, as we're saying. And um, uh, it just it's that big, powerful moment there where the tomb splits open uh, from head to foot. And then as you hit it nail on the head, you know, Voldemort uh, stands over the tomb, takes the wand, and the sparks fly out of the wand, and that's where we leave the chapter. What uh, takeaways did you have, man? Yeah, uh, yeah, I thought it was cool that Harry starts thinking of Dumbledore's advice about the years. He, you know, he almost like had an internal vision of Dumbledore quizzing him. You know, like say they had it like you know, he was like over the over the uh, fingers tipped over his glasses and like all right, well you knew what Ron was gonna do with the Deluminator. You knew about Wormtail. Like, what do you know about me? I thought that was pretty cool that uh, mm-hmm. he had that kind of little backflash there when he was making that decision between Hallows and Horcruxes. Uh, you know, obviously he he asks Scripo to help him break in the Gringotts, especially Bellatrix's vault. That's a big foreshadow. It's huge. And honestly, remember when Hagrid said they give you mad to try and rob it because there are so many enchantments and spells and they're they're supposed to be a lot of things to guarding the treasures down there so that's going to be a big foreshadow uh that's that's a full circle and a foreshadow honestly from sorcerer's stone when hagrid told him that to where we are now but uh harry believes it's a horcrux in bellatrix's vault and that's why she was scared of it being stolen like without her she doesn't know it's a horcrux but something that's valuable to the mm-hmm. voldemort is why she was so worried that they had been inside her vault um what I did say, and I think this was a big takeaway for me, it seems like Dobby's death kicked Harry into gear. All of a sudden, he's confident, sure of himself, and really begins to take charge. Like, like this, I think Dobby's death yeah. was a turning point of this novel. I think this was the thing that kicked it all. Like, like stuff yeah. was starting to turn in their favor. Then they got caught. Then Dobby saved them, and then it was like you now, now we're now we're kicked into gear. Now we now we know what's going on. Now we've got a clear mm-hmm. like uh, path of action, if that makes sense. So that's what I thought that was pretty important. Uh, yeah, Ollivander tells Harry that his wand cannot be repaired by any means that he knows of, which is kind of provides evidence that Ollivander is really not the best wand maker, based on what we know what happens at the end of the book, right? So, like, I think <laughs> right. that, that I think it's that you know Ollivander clearly doesn't have the kind of knowledge that other wand makers have. So I'll say that. Um, also, you know, like you were mentioning, Ollivander tells Harry that the wands he stole belong to Draco and Bellatrix. That if a wand has been won, its allegiance will change, which is a huge and one of the biggest foreshadows of the next conflict that's going to be coming up later on down the road uh, throughout the rest of the book. Uh, Ollivander does also explain how wizards' bond with wands affects the ability of the magic that can be produced. That's an important point. Uh, Ollivander also confirms. Not only is Harry now singing there, but Ollivander confirms it, so that way Ron and Hermione can't even argue with it. Ollivander's like, yeah, as I was being tortured, he's after the Elder One. Like, there's no doubt about it now. Harry, Harry was right the whole time. Like, his intuition yeah. was right. And, uh, you know, from there, her, Harry tells Hermione that Voldemort will know Harry's wand is broken because they left Hermione's wand behind. And here we go with a full circle moment, Priori and Cantatum learning the spells of the, pro- the past of the wand. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, there was a rumor that Grigorovich had the Elder Wand and was studying and duplicating the qualities of, of it, which would make sense because that's why so many people preferred Grigorovich and how people swore that Grigorovich made the best wands because he had the Elder Wand and was able to study the properties of it. So, 
that's kind of like an I, you know something I wanted to point out. And then the last thing, and it's exactly basically what you said. Voldemort now has the Elder Wand, and that's where the first half of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows comes to an end. You know, this is exactly where it ends in the book as well, too. So that's all the big impact moments, our favorite moments throughout the takeaways of these chapters. It's a lot of great stuff. So with that being said, I think it makes sense to kind of move on into the plot holes and discrepancies section. Uh, since I kind of just went on a little tangent there, how about you go ahead and get us started with the plot holes section? Yeah, man, uh, I really didn't find any. I mean, I guess... I mean, it makes sense that they would go to Malfoy Manor, and I guess... I mean, I, I find it a little hard to believe that Ollivander has never, like, even heard of Deathly Hallows. I have a little bit of a problem with that. <laughs> like, he's a wand maker, but he's never even heard of that. Um, but I really didn't have any plot holes. What about you, man? I have three. And one of them is not, like, I don't know if any of them are really very big plot holes. One might be. There's two things that just don't make sense to me, though. Uh, if, you guys, if you guys will do me the favor of turning to page 456, if you're reading along with Chase and I. On page 456, at the very top of the page, like, the third, I would say paragraph, but it's more dialogue. This is when Grindelwald is talking to Voldemort. It says, So you have come. I thought you would one day, but your journey was pointless. I never had it. Well, clearly Grindelwald did have the Elder Wand. He stole it from Grigorovich. So is he just lying to Voldemort, or is like like this is like I guess that's the only way I could come to grips with that is that he just told Voldemort a bold-faced lie, saying he never had it because it's very clear that he in fact did have it, and Dumbledore took it from him in the duel, which we find out from Harry when he's talking to Ollivander. So. Uh, that's one of the things I have. I don't know. Do you see that there on page 456 at the top? Yeah, I didn't read too much into this. I basically assumed he was talking about, like, he doesn't have it at that moment in time. But, yeah, he clearly had it. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know yeah. why. I mean, but I he think says, he like, I never just... had it. <laughs> yeah, I never had it. I mean, yeah, that's a good call. Um I mean, I kind of just figured he was talking about that moment in time as far as, like, he knew he was going to come. But, yeah, as far as... So you have come, I thought you would one day, but your journey was pointless. I never had it. Well, he says you lie. So I guess the only thing I can come up with that's a bold-faced lie, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> that's the that's only like, that's conclusion my, I got, yeah. man. What about you? I don't know. That's I don't what have I any think that's, only, that. that's the only that's the only thing I can like kind of take it is that Grindelwald was trying to lie to Voldemort, um, but so that's yeah. why I said that's not that it's not a terrible plot hole. It's just something that I, I have reason to question. And then the yeah. next thing I had, and it just goes along like the the same sort of lines. It's, it's kind of with the Grindelwald Voldemort thing. The thing I've got a problem with, if you guys look at it, if part starting on that page four fifty six, like that conversation with Grindelwald and Voldemort starts there. And then doesn't pick up again until page 469, so literally 13 pages later. And then his final death, like, is uh, uh, three pages after that. So you're telling me, of all the things that were happening at the Malfoy Manor, it took that long for Voldemort to go ahead and kill Grindelwald? Like, no, it would have happened, like, immediately. Yeah. Like, all those things happened. Like, they got caught by them. They were put in the cellar. They broke out with Dobby, Luna, Dean, and Ollivander. Then they went up there and fought, like, Bellatrix and Narcissa and Lucius. And all during all that time, Voldemort like just sat there, watched Grindelwald, and was like, 
I'm not going to kill you. I'm just going to wait for the right <laughs> moment. Like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. I just feel like the sequence, the sequence of events would have led, like the conversation between Voldemort and Grindelwald wouldn't have lasted as long as the events that took place while Harry was having visions of it and kind of trying to stay in the present. Is what I'm saying making sense to you? Yeah, it was a very shitty good cop, bad cop is what it was. <laughs> if you ask me, I don't, I don't, it, it should have been written to make it more realistic and believable. It should have been written where that happens and then they wind up going upstairs and that's where they find Bellatrix and Hermione is the way I think it should have happened. Just like you're saying, it shouldn't have taken that long, but I just accepted it for what it was. Like it, these visions were fading in and out, but I don't, I don't have any answers for that either. That's a good call. I think it's reading a little too much into it on that one, but I, I see what you're saying. It makes sense. Yeah, and then the last thing I've got, and this kind of is like a plot hole unless someone can help me understand it, is uh, this is like for Shell Cottage. Like Bill says that he's a secret keeper for Shell Cottage and like, you know, that they've been like smuggling uh, the Weasleys into Aunt Muriel's and that Arthur Weasley is the secret keeper there. That I don't have an issue with. But like, how could they find Bill and Fuller's cottage if Bill was a secret keeper? And I'm talking about originally, like, yes, Ron was there and Ron could have told them since ron was there but how did ron find it in the first place if bill was a secret keeper like like, like how did ron like, show up and find bill yeah, in cottage like i don't understand yeah because that means that bill would have had to reveal the secret <laughs> to, to ron somebody, yeah. so that's a good exactly. call yeah unless like i guess arthur said something to him but that one but he didn't go but remember ron didn't go to the borough with arthur so exactly ron never went to the borough ron went straight to shell cottage well how do you know where shell cottage is if they're like if it's underneath the Fidelius charm like that's the thing you wouldn't yeah. you shouldn't have been able to he shouldn't have been able to find it so well he uh, got caught by those snatchers so did he go straight to shell well yeah so I, I, yeah like maybe after yeah, yeah after he got caught I mean, by the snatchers because that's where he spent remember that's what he's saying that's where he spent christmas break like that's where he spent it christmas at because Bill yeah. and Ford, they didn't they didn't go home because they didn't want to hear that celestina warbeck he didn't want to hear the sister cauldron full right. of hot strong okay. love you yeah. know so like how the hell did he get to fucking the shell cottage man like if the fidelius charm has it under protection you have to be told by the secret keeper where it is and if ron wasn't told where it is how the hell did he find it yeah, I agree with that 100%, because what's the point of a secret keeper if no one can keep a secret about it? So, yeah, I agree with that, man. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that writing's getting a little womp womp. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I agree with you on that. That's good stuff. Awesome. So, yeah, those are the, the plot holes I had, and that kind of puts us into our interesting facts section. What what interesting fact did you have? Yeah, man, it's it's funny you mentioned uh, Finnier Greyback earlier where uh, on page 453 at the bottom where it says the werewolf might be allowed uh, to wear Death Eater robes when they wanted to use him, but only Voldemort's inner circle were branded with the dark mark. Greyback had not been granted the highest honor. So uh, what I have here is the reason, one of the reasons Voldemort decided not to make him uh, one of the Death Eaters. And so... Um, Greyback, of course, had not the big one of the big reasons Greyback was not able to receive the Dark Mark was because the Death Eater um, Death Eaters had a big adversity problem with lycanthropy and werewolves at the time, um, and that was a big issue uh, not just with Death Eaters but throughout the entire Wizarding world. But because 
uh, stigmatism towards werewolves in the Wizarding World, Voldemort actually refused to make him a Death Eater during his rise to power. Though, uh, it didn't actually matter to Voldemort personally. Uh, Voldemort uh, just decided he wanted to use Fenrir uh, as an ultimate weapon by being the manipulative per person he was. Almost like with giants and everything. Um, and he decided to make his attachment to him as part of the army versus uh, have adversity growing his army during the first wizarding war because he didn't want any adversity in there with gaining power. Uh, so that's part of the reason why uh, Finnyer Greyback was never made a Death Eater was because um, Voldemort, even though he personally never had a problem with it, but the rest of the wizarding world did. And if you think of it this way, it truly could have had an issue with a lot of the Death Eaters being recruited into the army. So that's uh, one of the big reasons why he didn't become a Death Eater. So what about you, man? Awesome. No, that's great stuff. I, I didn't really, I never looked into why he wasn't made a Death Eater. I'm glad I have some sort of answer to that now. Um, myself, my, my interest facts a little off the wall. Uh, so this is going to kind of probably make some people laugh, but I did my interesting fact on Peter Pettigrew's silver hand and like why like what happened to make it choke and kill himself so first off it's important to notate that what it is it's a magical prosthetic and so obviously we know how it came about right we remember from Goblet of Fire where like you know because he cut off his hand like the flesh of the bone gave you know willingly by the servant and all that so when Voldemort went ahead and gave it uh, gave him the hand like the creation of this hand immediately ceased the pain and Pettigrew's suffering upon his original hand it was impervious to spells remember like ron tried to hit relicio on it like so yeah. that hand could, it was impervious to, to curses and spells so uh but voldemort specifically designed it to strangle its owner if any sign of treason or weakness was demonstrated even once so it was a fail-safe way to ensure peter pettigrew's punishment for a second attempt at betrayal because think about peter pettigrew he's betrayed everyone over and over and over again he betrayed the potters he betrayed voldemort by not going to look for him he went back to the wizarding world then he betrayed the wizarding world again when sirius broke out and you know his cover was blown they went back to voldemort again so voldemort's like nah you ain't gonna happen so this time i'm gonna make sure you can't betray me again and this is that's exactly why it is so that's why the hand the reasoning why the hand was made and how it was made to kind of punish his uh his indiscretions his betrayals so one more thing on top of that as well is that the idea of a fake hand leading to a character's doom was also seen in the 1962 film Dr. No, where the titular character had a fake metal hand, his real ones having also been cut off like Peter Pettigrew's. And in both the films, the character displayed great strength with these hands, kind of like Peter Pettigrew with his when he crushed the, the stuff into dust, right? And uh, also both characters had disloyalty into play and with Pettigrew being suspect of, uh, you know, giving up Death Eaters, and Doctor No in his younger years being a member of the Chinese street gang that also embezzled money from them, uh, going ahead and, and betraying his own street gang. So, and both Pettigrew and Doctor, cool. yeah, Doctor No met their doom in a confrontation with the film's hero, and their false hands were the cause of their own downfall. So that's oh, that's wow. pretty cool, that was man. Pretty cool. Yeah, that's I just wanted awesome. to add that in there. Something that's a little off the wall. I'm sure not many people knew about. But uh, yeah, that's that's my interesting fact for this episode. It's awesome, man. It's a cool full, full circle moment in the book too. Like you know, Peter Pettigrew gets strangled with that hand that he was so rewarded with after you know 
<laughs> after losing his. So it's it's really awesome. That was a cool, interesting fact. That was good stuff, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'll I'll let you take it from here, brother. Oh, absolutely. So you know th- what this did is this kind of brings us to our conclusion of episode five of Deathly Hallows. You know, part five where we tackled chapter twenty-two through twenty-four. You know, next week what we're going to be tackling is going to be our differences episode part one between where we read up to today, chapter twenty-four, and Deathly Hallows part one, the film. So next week we are here to kind of go through our differences. This is a little different for people who are joining us for the first time today. Uh, usually what we do, there's only one film for each book, so we would just match up the, the film and the novel and kind of compare them. Well, because Deathly Hallows has two films, we had to might, uh, find the right spot to do the comparison for part one, and then, we'll, of course, at the end of the novel, we'll go ahead and compare part two of the film. So, yeah, we're on uh, we're on part five. Today is part five of our ten-part episode tackling the contents in the novel and the two films of Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows. There's also going to be interesting facts episodes mixed and in, interspersed in there as well, so... We've got a few episodes left, but uh, you know that's all for the future. I just want to say, uh, on behalf of myself, and I know Chase feels the same way, we're very thankful for you guys as followers, audience members listening to us, whether you get your uh, podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Podbean, one of our great hosts, like one of our great supporters. Our host site is one of our biggest supporters. They always uh, give us a shout-out on top of the fact that we have still been on the uh, feature list for Podbean since October of 2020. So uh, very, very remarkable. We're very, very thankful for their support and help throughout this process as well through our first you know, season of Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. So that being said, you can find our, our, our uh, show anywhere you do get your podcast. Uh, all people are welcome, uh, young and old, new, and people who've been there from the beginning, muggles, wizards, whoever you are, you are welcome here at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. Uh, so if this is your first time, welcome. I hope you tell some friends about it. If you've been here since the very, very beginning, uh, your loyalty to us, I mean, I can't even put into words the gratitude that we express because we wouldn't be here today without you guys, as Chase always says. So on top of that, uh, you know, just the little places of where you can find us outside of just listening to the podcast. We do have social media sites and other uh, locations where you can find our uh, the stuff that we talk about and, you know, our, our products and things of that nature. So on Instagram, you can find us at Official Ridiculous Patronus. At Facebook, you can find us on our fan page at Chase and Josh Factor Fantasy. We do have a specific website that we're in the process of updating as we speak today. Uh, we also have a TikTok that Chase has been working very diligently on. I'm not going to take any credit for that. Uh, I, you know, I'm a little, you know, me, I'm old, I'm a millennial. TikTok's a little after my time, so I don't really know how to, to <laughs> work it. But Chase is doing the legwork and figuring it out and. You know, we're putting some stuff up there, some content on there, and we've been getting some good feedback from that as well. So uh, thank you for guys for every time you leave a review and you comment, you reach out to us in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you know, it, it makes our day because this is why we do it. We do it because you guys have something to listen to. It brings value to you as people, and that's all we do, right? Content producers, what we want to do is we want to bring value to the people who are interested and invested in us. So uh, that being said, I'll turn it over to Chase for some last words, and then I'll sign us off, and we'll get out of your hair for the day. Yeah, man. Uh, just some final words here. Uh, don't forget. So next week we'll do the differences, and then there won't be an interesting fact. So uh, this week on interesting facts, we're gonna have some cool stuff. Um, we're gonna talk about kind of the history of the Elder Wand and its previous uh, previous users. Just a little bit of, on that, and then we're also gonna list uh, the different types of wand cores. So that's kind of our big. Um, big focus on uh, the next uh, this coming week's episode is just listing off the all the wand cores that are there so I think there's like 
25 of them or something like that, which is pretty cool. Not going to tell you a lot about them, but we're going to list them off, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, once again, guys, just thanks for all you do for us, following us from the beginning. Uh, I'll make this short and sweet. You know, uh, you know, I think we said it. Uh, cheers to the Fallen. Cheers to Dumbledore. Cheers to Dobby. Cheers to Sirius. We've lost some great ones along the way, so these episodes are pretty powerful, but you guys are the shields that guard the realms of fantasy. And now I'll let Jay Nelly himself sign us out here tonight. Ah oh, man, I love it. That was deep stuff, man. I, it's cool that you're, you're going to be doing the wand cores and the uh, interesting facts episode. And, and when, I, when you said that, I kind of thought of that uh, Lincoln Park song. So even though we're done with the day, for the day today, you're like, do you want a wand core if you want more? <laughs> do you want more? <laughs> that was so. epic. Awesome. For sure, man. So uh, with that being said, guys, we'll get out of your hair today because you know this has been another ridiculous production. Chase and Josh. Factor Fantasy. Signing, Signing off. off.